have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, and iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, iHeart, Facebook, Substack, and half a dozen other places, including our home webpage, which is the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, or I should say the least mostest, the radio chickadee, Annie, along with my courageous and oh-so-crazy co-host, <laughs> Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Hey, I'm still trying to figure out what planet I'm on. All these crazy things <laughs> going on. I don't even recognize America anymore. Oh, jeez. And it's getting crazier and crazier and crazier. I want to say hi to all our friends out there that are listening in on Blog Talk Radio in the chat room as well as up on Facebook. If you're trying to get into YouTube, we're banned. We're in Gitmo again. Oh, we're, we're oh, bad, man. bad, bad, bad people. Uh, they, they, they banned me again. No, I just did it. I had to talk about COVID, and, of course, they said, no, you're giving misinformation. Despite the fact I used government statistics and government reports. So, but no, no, no. The government is giving us misinformation, which I'm only repeating. So I, I'm the one doing the misinformation. Right. <laughs> I got a, I got a yeah. bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. I'm so tired of this censorship. It just doesn't make sense. Like I said, it sounds like the Soviet Union. Uh, well, we got ourselves a jam-up show. Uh, we have Susan Daniels that will be joining us. She's the author of The Rubbish Hauler's Wife versus Barack Obama. Do you remember the brouhaha that came up about his birth certificate? Well, guess who started it? Susan did. 
and and it's it's just been going getting better and better and better. She wrote a book about her biography and how she ended up involved in this, and she's still pursuing it. She is still pursuing it. Bless her heart. Uh, we also have Kenny Zhu. He's the author of School of Woke: How Critical Race Theory Infiltrated American Schools and Why We Must Reclaim Them. And he's also the president of a website, a, a foundation he calls. Color Us United, which advocates for a colorblind society. We have then your friend, Wayne Friday, who is a founder of a new pro-life organization that he'll be uh, launching, and he'll be talking to us about that. Now, if we're lucky, uh, third time will be a charm. Mark Tapscott, we were texting back and forth to each other on the phone last night, so he should be here. Uh, God forbid that something else breaks. And matter of fact, this did break just as we were coming in on the uh, on the show. It came across. Here we go. Let me pull this. No, where the heck did I do? Oh, uh, American Briefing had it on there that Merrick Garland has now appointed a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden and the Biden family. And guess who he he appointed? Weiss, the very man that he claimed that that. The very man that testified and said that he had to get permission to do any prosecution through Merrick Garland. So now Merrick Garland is throwing more <laughs> fire fuel on the fire by appointing Weiss to do exactly what he should have been doing uh, several years ago. Oh, God, this is getting crazier and crazier and crazier. This just broke over the wire. It is. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then we're going to have, after Mark Tapscott, Hannah Davis from the Heritage Foundation. And there's more stuff breaking about that. I don't know if anyone caught Eric Adams on, uh, what was it? He was, I don't know if it was The View or one of those liberal shows, and complaining about the homelessness and the illegal immigration in the very city that he welcomed them with open arms to. It just gets better and better and better. You cannot make this stuff up. Honestly, you cannot. You can't. You can't. You no. cannot make this stuff up. Oh, good Lord. So anyway, that is going to be our show today. I want to welcome everyone that is here uh, in the chat room on Blog Talk Radio. We do have it up over on Facebook. And like I said, we're banned on YouTube for a while. This is, quote, unquote, my first strike. <laughs> we'll see how long before I make it my third strike. Yeah. It's kicked off of YouTube a second time. Uh, well, all of my seven followers on YouTube. I, I'm, I'm such a bad person. Such a bad, bad person. Folks, go over to Substack and find me over on Substack under Seven Cents. Uh, <laughs> I can't make this stuff up. Yeah. I, it gets better I would just better. like to know. I like to know who's making these decisions on what's, you know, true and what's propaganda. You know, who's making these decisions, you know, to ban people, mm. you know. That's just, I don't know. I, we we need to look into well, that, special prosecutor. Well, they have these artificial intelligence, these bots that scan through and they look for certain code words. And don't say mRNA and genetic engineering in the same sentence. That will get you banned. So I'm sorry. The mRNA alters the genome 
uh, in the virus, which in turn alters the genome in the victim, who now you can find out even if you have not been vaccinated, the vaccine can be passed through aerosol. I don't mean a spray can. By just standing next to me and breathing, you can pass the vaccine onto me, and unwittingly, my DNA can be then altered. And that DNA, once it's altered, and if your childbearing years, years can be passed on to your yet-to-be-born children. And, oh, yes, and if your children have not been vaccinated and they already are born, you can now then pass the vaccine on to your children. So we have forever altered the DNA of the human race. And Lord knows what future generations are really going to look like. What will their health issues be because of this experiment, this human experiment that has occurred worldwide? And if this is not an attack on the world by communist China, I don't know what is. Anyway, that said, (laughs) can we get any more serious than that, Curtis? I'm telling you, I, maybe I have to go back to wearing a mask so I don't get a contact. Nope, that's not going to stop it. That won't stop it, honey. Because once the droplets oh. land on you, you inhale them, mask or no mask. The mask doesn't do diddly squat. And I'm sure Sweet Sue, who's listening in, can verify that the droplets, the yeah. the, the, the microbes can go straight through that mask. It doesn't do crap. It makes uh, you I'm feel to, better about yourself. Well, and I, I'm still laughing I'm because it, what a spacesuit, maybe a, space a, a respirator. Suit. How much they go for a gas a mask? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, those that listen to the show know that we start off. Each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And uh, thank you for being everyone so understanding last uh, week about my not doing the show. My hands were full with a patient, uh, <laughs> my fiancé, uh, having his hip replaced. And uh, it is, it's been an interesting week. Uh, some people are good patients and others are not. And I'll leave it at that for now. Mm. I'll take my four joint replacements to his one, (laughs) and I'll run circles around him. Anyway, uh, today's dedication is going to go out to to police officer Mark Christopher Wagner II of Wintergreen Police Department of Virginia. His end of watch was Friday, June 16th of this year. And this is coming from... WTVR, which is a CBS uh, affiliate, as well as WHSV. Uh, HSV is from Mike Staley, and WTVR CBS is from the staff. And this reads, Police Officer Christopher Chris Wagner II died Friday, June 16th after a confrontation with the Maryland man in the woods near Arrowwood Lane, according to officials with the Virginia State Police and the Wintergreen Police Department. Wagner was called to the Arrowwood Lane home at about 10 p.m. that Friday, according to Virginia State Police, who are now handling the investigation. 
An emergency call came into the Wintergreen Police Department about the suspect assaulting two other adult males at the residence they were all staying at on Arrowwood Lane. A Virginia State Police spokesperson wrote in an email, adding, After calling police, the two injured males fled the residence on foot. Police said when Wagner arrived, he found the suspect later identified as 23-year-old Daniel M. Barmack of Townsend, Maryland, in the nearby woods, and a struggle ensued. During the course of the struggle over Wagner's department-issued handgun, Barmack shot and killed the officer. The Virginia State Police spokesperson wrote, Barnack was also shot during the encounter. During the course of the struggle, the officer was shot and died at the scene. Officials said Barmack was taken into custody, quote, without further incident by Wintergreen Police and the Nelson County Sheriff's Office, unquote. Both Barmack and the two 23-year-old men who ran from the Arrowwood Lane home were taken to UVA Medical Center with non-life-threatening injuries. Inside the residence, state police recovered illegal narcotics, troopers said. Wagner's department-issued handgun was recovered at the shooting scene in the woods. Barmack was charged with capital murder, use of a firearm in the commission of a felony, and two felony counts of malicious wounding. He is being held at the Albemarle Charlottesville Regional Jail. The 31-year-old officer was remembered for his strong worth ethic and service to the community, Winter Green's Chief of Police, Dennis Russell, said. Wagner joined the Wintergreen Police in 2020, working for the Massanutten Police for seven years, where he began his career as a gate attendant before graduating from the Central Shenandoah Criminal Justice Academy, Russell said. Chris asked for and worked the midnight shift, Russell wrote. Whenever you saw Chris in the daylight, he wore dark, dark sunglasses and would crack a smile or two. Chris was dedicated to his job, and whenever called for extra duty, he was ready, willing, and able. Russell said the avid outdoorsman who spent much of his time hiking and photographing nature was remembered for always going out of his way to cheer others up. The chief also said Wagner's infectious laugh was loud and echoed throughout the office. Wagner's father told Russell that Chris was like Batman, and said he recently gave his son a batarang to go with the assortment of tools the officer carried on his belt. Chris is survived by his immediate family and the men and women who were his wintergreen police family, Russell wrote. A fund has been established to help Wagner's family as wintergreen police is a private police department, so the officer's family is not eligible for the state line-of-duty death benefits, according to officials. Chris answered his final call before taking his place with other heroes who have gone before him by laying down his life for the people he swore to protect and serve, Russell wrote. Christopher Wagner, Wintergreen Police Officer ID number 15, was and always will be a hero. And from Mike Staley, he writes, Communities and agencies all across the Commonwealth gathered to pay respects to Mark Christopher Chris Wagner II, 
the Wintergreen police officer killed in the line of duty. On June 16th, Officer Wagner answered his final call and made the ultimate sacrifice protecting the community he cared for. Wintergreen Police Chief Dennis Russell said Wagner's love for the badge was evident and his commitment to the community was undeniable. He also said he will be remembered for his infectious laugh that echoed through their office. On June 26, a funeral service was held for Wagner. Hundreds of people attended the funeral. First responders from across the state gathered to honor Wagner. Local and state officials, including Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, were there to offer their words to the friends, family, and fellow officers gathered to remember Wagner. There simply are no words that can adequately honor Chris's memory, Youngkin said. Chris was a light. He was a bright light, a son to a loving father whose life was taken far too soon. Officer Wagner grew up in Stewart's Drift, Virginia, and graduated from the Spotswood High School in 2010. He served the Wintergreen community for three years and was the agency's taser and bowler rap instructor. Russell said Wagner was dedicated to his job, and whenever he was called for extra duty, he was ready and able to do it. He also said Wagner asked to work the midnight shift to protect the community when they were the most vulnerable. When I interviewed him for the first time, he said I would like to work the midnight shift, Russell said. That's where he wanted to serve his community, is in the dark. When everyone else is sleeping and they need to be taken care of and they need to be watched on, that's where Chris wanted to be. Officer Wagner's father, Mark Wagner, said Chris was more than a son. He was a friend to everybody. He always got a big hug. He always got that goodbye. Have a good shift. See you in the daylight, Mark Wagner said. That was typical of us. That was the nature of our relationship. Like friends. Friends that knew each other like his family in blue. Russell, on behalf of the entire Wintergreen Police Department, said, Chris, Chris Wagner, Wintergreen Police Officer ID 15, was and always will be a hero. Governor Youngkin also commented on the heroic status Officer Wagner deserved and will always be remembered and honored that way. A hero answers that call. A hero may seem ordinary, but do extraordinary things, Junkin said. A hero loves the world deeply in a way that we can all feel that is palatable. Our hero works the night shift when everyone else is sleeping. Today's show is dedicated to Police Officer Mark Christopher Wagner II. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, whether they be law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate this show to all those that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our hopeful future. May God bless each and every one. We dedicate to them this song by Tiffany, Soul of the Nation.
Blog Talk Radio. And actually, we are up on YouTube. I just double-checked. Sorry, I was only banned for a couple of weeks. Hey, <laughs> I'm somebody. You're forgiven. I'm back. You are forgiven. <laughs> I'm back. I'm back up on YouTube. Oh, yeah. So for just a short. Um, Curtis, you're going to get ready to call our guest in a few moments, correct? Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay, we're going to do that. Uh, meanwhile, um, while you do that, I want to talk about something that's strange that happened. Um, there was a gentleman uh, by the name of Craig Robertson, Craig DeLu Robinson out of Utah, um, Air Force veteran, uh, elderly man, uh, and uh, he was obviously rather upset with what was going on with the Biden administration and uh, had posted some things that were maybe not the wisest things to post. Uh, And, of course, now there was supposedly threats to uh, President Biden in those posts. And rather than doing an investigation and knocking on the guy's door uh, politely and say, hey, let's have a conversation here, it seems that a massive number of FBI agents uh, showed up at his front door and uh, started banging on the door, demanding he come out. Somewhere along the way, it was like 20 officers. Shots were fired. We don't know in which direction who fired the shots. Uh, Unfortunately, this man lost his life. Um, So this is an ongoing story right now, which is now breaking in the news. And it looks like we've got our guest in on the Honest, I've got the teeth in straight, if I could put them in. Welcome <laughs> to the show, Southern Sense, Susan Daniels. Uh, she is the author of The Rubbish Holder's Wife versus Barack Obama. And I had the pleasure of talking with her, along with Vicki uh, Tompkins, on Moms uh, for uh, Moms Across America. I can't speak for the life of me, Susan. <laughs> Here, forgive me, slap you upside my head or something. I am all tongue-tied. Uh, well, I'm happy to be with you again. Oh, it is our pleasure. Our pleasure. And things are really heating up out there. I mean, I, I have never seen a political environment as crazy as we see. And I never thought I'd see it in our lifetime. It is, it's It's going from odd to odder to oddest. Yeah, it's <laughs> getting bad. It's getting really bad. Yeah, and now the investigator, prosecutor uh, for the Hunter Biden thing, Weiss, who is saying, hey, listen, I can't put any charges, I can't prosecute this guy without direct permission from Merrick Garland. And lo and behold, just before we go go on air, I get a newsflash that who does Garland appoint as special prosecutor of the Hunter Biden kerfuffle? Weiss. Uh, Every guy. Uh, uh, I mean, it's it's like a bad soap opera. (laughs) I actually, you really can't make this stuff up lately. You Uh, you would think uh, this is something like Monty Python or or something like that. But wait a minute. Monty Python has actually done half of these things that are occurring today in their (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but they were funny when they did them. Mhm. I know. I mean, we used to walk around in high school going, "Hello, Mrs. Premise. Hello, Mrs. Conclusion." <laughs> <laughs> We're so adult, We're singing. Aren't we? 
We're singing spam, 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 spam. <laughs> yep. For anyone who's now, never it's... watched Monty Python, go to YouTube and pull it up. <laughs> oh, yeah, they really need to watch it. I mean, it'll it'll take them far away from the mess we have going now. Oh, geez. I mean, uh, you came first to my attention when someone sent me information about Tafari Campbell's uh, drowning. And you had written an article up on Substack, which we are both members of, um, oh, which was great. Uh-huh. You were saying, how can this chef, who is an expert swimmer, who has been seen doing workout routines in the water for 40 minutes straight, suddenly just drown? Allegedly in eight feet of water, but you're saying that's not what happened. It's it's not possible. No, because uh, someone sent to me um, a a copy of a report called the Massachusetts Estuary Project, and this 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 uh, document is probably eighty pages long, and on one of the pages it showed the entire layout, uh, the entire. diameter, I shouldn't say diameter, the outline of the entire Edgar Pond. And, and then it had it had a chart and it showed the depth of, of the water starting, you know, starting at one foot all the way to eight feet. Now he allegedly drowned at 100 feet, 100 feet from shore and eight feet of water. Well, 100 feet from shore, it was two to three feet deep. You didn't get to eight feet until 400 feet out into the water. And, uh, and I, th- I thought that was significant. You know, I said, yeah, that's I said, the, you just stand he, up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I said he could have saved himself by sitting up. You know? Yeah. The uh, the whole thing from the beginning was was just ridiculous. The way the, from the first story, and then every day the story changed. You know why why they did not. Why they were not truthful, and they still haven't been. Why they weren't truthful from the start, I have no idea. I mean, the first story, it sounded like it just happened that somebody else was there paddle boarding, like maybe they didn't even know each other, and not a a mention of who called for help. Well, then then a couple of days later, then we have, uh, yes, somebody was, a female was with him, and she swam to shore to get help. And it's like, how do you swim in two feet of water? You know, it really can't be done. And, well, and then we progress to it's a female employee and the civil service called for help. I mean, Secret Service called for help. And uh, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll bet anything that it was one of the Obama daughters that was out there paddleboarding with him. And if they would have just, if that was the case, they should have just said that from the start and ended it right there. But I, I, you know, in the story said, it talked about an autopsy. I don't believe an autopsy was even done because they, all it said is, well, the autopsy showed there was no bruising on the body. Well, there should have been a cause of death (laughs) included in the autopsy, like he had water in his lungs. I mean, we don't really mm-hmm. even know if he drowned or how he died. And we'll probably never know. Uh, it, it's oh, very we'll strange because I, I've seen the, the postings of the ledger, and every single call is documented who called, what address, what phone number. 
oddly yep. enough, that one line, it's blank. Yep. Now, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, if I leave something Talk like about- that out and, and, and I don't mark it down, that's a disciplinary action. Oh, yeah. But we don't well, see any heads rolling. You know, I mean, but it should have said, I, well, I mean, I, I mean, that was just, I mean, it's like, look at me, look at me. They should have put in there, you know, uh, accidental drowning. They should have put something in there. I mean, talk about drawing attention to something you don't want people to look at. I mean, how foolish was that? I mean, I don't know who makes these kinds of decisions, but they're they're really stupid. <laughs> well, then again, uh, then again, uh, after having read your wonderful book, uh, which is titled "The Rubbish Hauler's Wife versus Barack Obama," uh, we find that Barack Hussein Obama was not the sharpest tack in the box especially with his fellow Harvard colleagues. Well, you know, the truth is there is no one better than him at reading a teleprompter. He he is Mm -hmm. excellent at it. He is also not very smart. I've heard him try to put a sentence together off the cuff, and he doesn't do a very good job of it. Yeah, oh, wait a minute, but wasn't he a constitutional law professor? <laughs> really? He taught one he taught one class at, at Chicago uh University of Chicago Law School. And um and I yeah, I, I I think I included a, a picture of him at the blackboard. He taught a class yes. in the Alinsky methods. He they they I I think it's all in my book. It talks about how how uh Somebody wanted him to uh, to teach there, and the school said absolutely not. He's not qualified, you know, as any kind of instructor. And they were said, you will give him an office, you will give him a class to teach, and that's that. And they gave him an office and a class to teach. It said the other professors hated him because they they said he was the the least intelligent person in the building. They had no use <laughs> the for him at all. Was smarted. The janitor oh, yeah, was smarter. Probably, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. But I mean, he's been a phony, a phony his entire life. You know everything about him, just like Michelle Obama. Everything about her is pretense. I mean, she tries to pretend she had this hard upbringing in Chicago. She was living a, a, a upper middle class life. You know, I I wish I had lived like she did. You know, she had dance classes starting when she was eight years old. You know, she went to Paris with her with her French class. I I've never been to Paris. You know, but they're phony. They're two phonies, and they they're like a couple of parasites that feed off each other. Well, there's you a know, lot the that reason- deals with the. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, there's a lot no. that you deal with with the Obamas, but you also do your own uh, personal history in there, which is in itself is very interesting. Uh, but you, you honed in on the Obama family, but that wasn't what your your normal path would have been. Someone asked you to do this, right? Right. I had a client that asked me to uh, look into his background. He was already president. I did not like him when I saw him running as the candidate because something something was very uncomfortable 
about him to me. Something was was just off, and obviously my instincts were good because uh, he's turned out to be a horror worst president we've ever had in in my lifetime, which is this long. Uh, he he he's a, he's a real phony. Uh, I, it makes me laugh that people think that he's still running the show. He's not intelligent enough to. I think the I think the women surrounding Biden are running it. You know the Victoria Newlands and and the Valerie Jarrett's and, and all those people, and they're taking their orders from higher up. From I think people like Klaus Schwab, I, who was determined mm. to destroy the world. Yeah, we we unfortunately have this new world order coming out of this individual, uh, along with George Soros, and what they plan for us is not not really good. <laughs> they, they, it's they, not good now. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Um, and we're we're finding out we're reaping the rewards of their work, unfortunately. And uh, President Biden is a result of one of those things. Uh, and Queen Camilla Mella Harris is not too far behind. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, I mean, what a what a what a uh, weak bench they have. I mean, it's just it's just. I mean, every time I see Kamala on on a news clip on the computer, I I click off it. I just can't even stand to listen to her talk. I mean, she she makes she makes no sense whatsoever. And that that she's a heartbeat away from the presidency is just it's so scary. It you know, is. If, it if, is. Yeah, she's more manipulative, well, more to, able to manipulate than than Biden is. Absolutely, absolutely. Because uh, someone was asking me yesterday, well, why can't we find some way to remove her? Yeah, for what cause? What the cause? Being stupid, for having an ugly laugh, for <laughs> telling her left from her right. Uh, that does not disqualify you from gaining office. Look, we had Jimmy Carter. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Jimmy Carter is a gift compared to Clinton, Obama, oh. and Biden now. Uh, oh, yeah. So I'm sorry. Intelligence was, is not a prerequisite, unfortunately, to well, become well, president of the United for, States at this date and yeah, time. Yeah, but even to be a politician. I mean, we have a total of 535 people in the government running all of our lives and half of them are total morons i mean look i mean how nancy pelosi hardly self-serving at all how about feinstein she she i i just saw that she gave her daughter power of attorney over over all her 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 everything in her life and yet she's she's still sitting in the Senate and voting. I, how about Federal? Uh, be, being told, you know, being told how to vote. If you get that, did you yeah, catch that clip? I did she, because she started going off on, into a speech when all they wanted her to vote. Somebody said, "Just say I," and I thought, "Oh my God, here here we go." You know, it's this bad. Somebody's off to I, the or, side telling her how to vote. Oh, what about Fetterman? Shall we get into Fetterman now? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I feel I feel sorry for the man, but uh, you can't convince me that that vote wasn't rigged too. Because who who votes for somebody that cannot even speak, speak a coherent sentence? 
who can't, they have a computer there that he can read what other people are saying in the, in the, it, while the, the Senate is in, at work because he can't, he can't process the words, but he can read them. I mean, it's just, it's horrible. I mean, our, 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 the, the, the politics are a joke anymore. We're headed down oh. a very bad road. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, your book, which is a fantastic read called The Rubbish Holder's Wife versus Barack Obama, um, you go through what happened to you. You're a young widow. Um, life was great. Well, I shouldn't say great, but you, you had kids that you loved. You had a husband that you loved. Uh, and then the world came crashing down in on you, and you found that you were not part of one but three families. Uh, right. And your husband was murdered by someone that was supposed to have been a friend. Uh, right. And that started your life on a new trajectory. Well, it's interesting because it it started there. Yeah, the book is actually a was sort of is a memoir, and it started. That's I mean, it, I, at thirty was like a complete reversal of who I had been because up until that point, I was you know just a housewife and a mother, and all of a sudden I'm the mother, the father, the breadwinner, the I'm I'm everything to to, to seven kids. And which is a, 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 was a very scary prospect for me. Um, it, uh, but I, it took me from there. I mean, life just takes you. You know, it's like being in a, in a boat on a, on a river. It and, and without a paddle, it just carries you along. And I had I had never intended to be a private investigator. It just happened. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I was looking for work, and somebody called and said they wanted to hire me. And I said, okay. You know, that, that's how, at 52, <laughs> that's how I became a private investigator. Yeah, you got your license, you started your own business, and then right. someone out of the blue said, you know, hey, why don't you look into this background of this guy named Barack Hussein Obama and yep. see what you can dig up. What... You started to unravel the threads. What were you finding? Well, it, I mean, as an investigator, the first thing you look for, because the most important thing is the Social Security number. So I went on there expecting, if I found anything, to find him with a Hawaiian Social Security number, which would have started with the numbers 575 or 576. Because the way that Social Security used to be set up is the lower number started on the East Coast and they got higher as you went West. So, uh, but instead, I find Barack Obama with the Connecticut number starting with 042, and I immediately know that this is fraudulent. And I, that's where I started. That's the thread I pulled. And from there on, I, I got addresses. I got a, a cell phone number. The, the number that he is using was issued on March 28, 1977. Uh, Social Security numbers are, are, were always issued by your address where you lived when you applied for the number because that's where they would send it. Send it. Um, it went, in 1977, he was a 15-year-old living in Hawaii. He started using that number in his mid-20s. 
he he would have previously had a Hawaiian number that magically disappeared. And I suspect it was to keep people from knowing where he had traveled to, you know, like his trip to Pakistan in 1981 when Americans were not allowed to be there. Um, everything was very mysterious about him. Uh, there, there's, I don't think we're ever going to know who he is or anything about him. But, I, you know, I was able to make some pretty good guesses. Uh, he... It, it said it was issued to somebody that had been born in 1890. And when I started running a cell phone number I ran, uh, that I found for him, uh, it would come up with also his date of birth. And it would say, you know, 8461, or it would be the European way, 4861. But it also said 1890, just like like it said that it had been issued to. Now, people want to argue about that and say, well, they weren't giving out Social Security numbers in 1890. You know, of course they weren't. They did, it didn't start till 1936. But what happened is I found another woman who got her Social Security number the same day that number was issued, and she had been born in 1896, and in her file was a letter that said, I have been using my husband's social security number, which which was very common, uh, and but he died and now I needed my own. So I said it just is easy for somebody born in 1890 at the age of 87 to have needed some kind of government help, whether it be health care, whatever it was, and had not had a number of their own before and got that number then and then subsequently died. Well, the Social Security never, never uh, reissues a number, ever. You know, people tried to say mm -hmm. that I was wrong, it was reissued. No, it was not. That is, was never his number. It's a stolen number. To use a stolen Social Security uh, number is a felony. And, you know, we elected a felon to the White House. I mean, I tried to fight that in 2012 by, by suing in Ohio, suing the Secretary of State, trying to keep him off the ballot with the argument that uh, he was using a stolen number. I, I filed a, uh, an 18-page complaint and attached 83 documents proving, proving what I was claiming was true. And uh, it, it did no good. Mm. You know, we had this conversation before, but you could actually take the document that is the alleged uh, birth certificate and actually deconstruct it using Photoshop because whoever yep. put the document together used a font that was not around back in 1961. The right. font was not invented until I think the 1980s. Uh, so someone went on their computer created this document, but they didn't know what they were doing. Because anyone that's in the printing business or the graphic art business knows that the only reason you keep something separate is if you're going to send it out to have it put on, like, say, for example, a four-color press, you need to separate the colors. Uh, yeah. But if you're going to use it as a regular document, you're going to flatten it or merge down, uh, merge the layers down. So this was still left in layers. So anyone with Photoshop on their computer 
could sit there and actually separate the layers and see how the document was created in stages, what right. layer was put down and what the order of the layers were. And uh, there also I was, was able no to do it on my imp- computer. Yeah, there was also no imprint from a notary stamp. There was a stamp on it, a rubber stamp on there, but there was no imprint from the, from the notary stamp. And that was the first thing I looked for, be, being a notary myself. I mean, they no longer use those stamps. I do, but uh, it would there would the imprint would have shown. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, they had the wrong race, the, the wrong race for the, the, allegedly his father, and the, the race said African, which is not a race. Uh, it, it, in 1961, um, so uh, the Census Bureau would have only accepted Negro for for somebody from from Africa, and uh, mm-hmm. in fact, in in the immigration in in the father's immigration file, he is uh, he is British. His nationality is British because Kenya was still a uh, an, a an English protectorate until 1963. Right. That's right, yeah. There's so many things that you pulled up that so many anomalies in his life as to exactly Uh who was his father uh, and whether or not he was born uh, not in Hawaii or not in Connecticut, but maybe even in Canada. Uh, There's a lot of questions that are there. and even as to who, whether or not the two girls he claims as his daughters are whether or not truly are his daughters. There's, right. there's so much that you reveal in the book, and you show how you determined all these things. Uh, you left a lot saying, well, I'm not sure, but this is how it looks, and you're honest about that in the book. Uh, so far, no one has challenged you, and no one has sued you, have they? No, no. No, no, I've never even, I mean, starting in 2009 when I started accusing him of using a stolen number, I've I've never even gotten a nasty letter or phone call or anything. No, <laughs> I, think, I think they just want to ignore me hoping I'll go away, and yet I don't go away. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, there's so much that we could talk about with this guy because, you know, um, there was an article that just popped up. Uh, well, I shouldn't say just popped up, but this was back in 2008, uh, linking Fra- Frank Marshall Davis, the mentor to Barack Obama, uh, dealing with um, pornography and underage sex. And oh, yeah. when I pulled this article up, um, I'm doing a little bit more search around the Internet, and now I find that Barack Obama is, was doing a campaign on TikTok defending bad book, banned books. Uh, he oh, also yeah. uh, made, in, this was in The Hill, uh, he was shouting uh, out to the librarians while, you know, talking about censorship. So supporting these banned books, uh, supporting right. the alternative lifestyle, we should say, and yet it seems he lived it. Yeah. Uh, he's he's the he's the, the biggest hypocrite around. Yeah, he wrote he wrote this lengthy letter to to all librarians saying nothing should be banned, you know. And I thought, huh, I wonder if he feels that way about Larry Sinclair's book about the uh, 
the two days they spent together in uh, Chicago in 1999 having sex and using coke. I'm sure he'd like to ban Larry Sinclair's book. (laughs) But people, mysterious things happen to people around the Clintons and the Obamas. And that's some of the things that you also cover in the book. It's odd things happen where, you know, the odds are against them occurring, uh, and yet they always seem to benefit uh, the Obamas and the Clintons, like a a charmed life. But one thing I I wanted to notate, because you mentioned that the uh, cell phone number was assigned in 1977, and having lived through that era, most people carried beepers. Cell phones were not prevalent unless no, you no, were... No, no, I um, said the social security number was assigned in, in, in 77. Uh, it was in 2009 when I started doing the background on him, I uncovered a cell phone number that he had, that was, you know, had been, that he had been using uh, for years, but I didn't know how far back. I mean, it would not have gone back to the oh. 70s, no. Oh, okay. I, I was caught that. I'm going, how long there was a number around, because that would have gone maybe possibly to beepers. Yeah. But cell phones that by the 90s were out. Yeah. Go ahead, Curtis. Susan, um, isn't it true that you cannot have dual citizenship and become president of the United States? Um, I was, have you looked that into was, that? I that that's the impression I'm under, uh, and that's everything I've read says that. I know it's possible to have dual citizenship and just be an ordinary person, but I I think you're absolutely right. I think you cannot have dual citizenship um, uh, and be president. Uh, I'll tell you what, Nikki Haley and. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, neither one of them are qualified to even run for office because their parents were not citizens when they were born. They had not yet been naturalized. So both of them are, of course, citizens, but they were not natural-born citizens, and they're, they're not qualified, and I can't imagine why they're allowed to run. Obama was not, was not qualified to run, and yet here we got stuck with him for eight years. Well, I think well, I'm, I'm, in that case, they just, they just want to say, well, you know, such and such did it. Well, so what are y'all complaining about? You didn't say anything about Nikki Haley. So, but you're yeah, true. Well, you're I, right. I, here yeah. we go. Well, Article 2, Article two, Section 1, Paragraph 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Uh, paragraph 5, no person except a natural-born citizen or citizen. citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution, meaning 1796, right. uh, shall be eligible for the office of president. Neither shall any yeah. person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained to the age of 35 years and been 14 years a resident within the United States. So unless you're a natural-born citizen... Right. In this day and age, you cannot be president of the United States. There was no question about Ted Cruz, John McCain, and... Well, oh, well yeah. the, the, the issue with Ted Cruz, though, is his mother... She, he was born in Canada, but his mother was uh, American. And he... Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they... I don't, under, I don't know if you have to have both parents as... as 
as citizens or just one. Um, but I did read that uh, if a woman, an American woman, gave birth outside the country, which I think happened with Barack Obama. I actually believe he was born in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, a woman could not confer citizenship on a baby unless she was five years past the age of 14. His mother was four years and nine months past the age of 14 when he was born. So she could not have conferred citizenship on him ever. You know, he would have had to apply to become a citizen. I don't think he's still a citizen. And well, I think everybody in Washington to... knew that. All right. According to this, it says, uh, and I'm looking at Wikipedia, so we'll take it from where it comes from. Uh, yeah. The Constitution does not define the phrase natural-born citizen, which is true. However, legally, it's meaning that you were born in the United States or uh, – I'm trying to think. The Supreme Court had defined it saying that uh, – I'm, I'm speed-reading this uh, – Meaning the national may never be decided. All right, they're saying that it's still the definition is still up in the air. Let me look at something else. Um, this is from Cornell Law, so let's forget about Wikipedia. Come on, open up. All right, natural born someone who was a U.S. citizen at birth and did not need to go through a naturalization process uh, appears in, the, but it does not define. As I read in article, Section 1, Article 2, uh, the Supreme Court has never precisely ruled upon the meaning. So just someone no. that has the right to be a U.S. citizen. So technically, if you were born in the naval base in Guantanamo Bay, you were born on American soil, which would make you a natural-born citizen. That's interesting. Right. Uh, and the thing with McCain is... He was, they, they claim he was born uh, in Panama on an, a Navy base, but I read that he was actually born in a hospital outside of the base, which means he would not have been born as a, you know, he would have not been a natural-born citizen. He would have been a citizen, but not natural-born mm. because he would have been born in another country. Right, yeah. So this, this, since the Supreme Court has never addressed this, it would be interesting when and if they ever do and how they define oh, natural-born citizens. <laughs> I, have no, I have no faith any longer in the Supreme Court. Oh, you man. know, uh, when, uh, when I saw that, that, that Elena Kagan, uh, when she was at Harvard, before she, became, she got on the Supreme Court, she did the outline for Obamacare. She did the, think about that, she did the outline of what Obamacare was going to be and then voted for it. She should have had to recuse herself, and it would not have passed. True. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, you, this book, you know something? As I said, it's fantastic. You know something that's... Go ahead, Curtis. You know something that's curious? What's um, that? Take, for instance, Barry Goldwater. He was born in Arizona before it became a state. So there are people who were born in the United States before that particular state even became a state. Oh, and I wonder. 
<laughs> I did want to have that. that. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, what, what an interesting question that is. Yeah, think about it. At the time that the Constitution was written and everything, we only had, you know, 13 right. colonies. Right. So are the other people that were born at that time before the state became ratified as a state, are they citizens of the United States? <laughs> That's an amazing question that I have no clue what the answer would be. No, it also, it would bring into question anyone born on an Indian reservation, since it's not considered. Um, oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> you're, you're right considered it's separate from the nation. So it, yep. defining natural-born citizen eventually is going to have to come before the Supreme Court in time. Uh, so this is very interesting. Uh, but well, it, you've opened the can of worms it, with Barack. <laughs> yeah, well, Hawaii didn't become a state till '59, I believe. So, right. You know, if he was legitimate, he would have made it if he was born in '61. Yeah. Before that, he, it would be questionable. But he, no one's, no one on the island of Hawaii or the island of Oahu saw her pregnant. No one did, and uh, I thought that was curious. So I tried to figure out where she could have gone. And I, it dawned on me she had only come from Seattle a, um, a year earlier. Which they, they, her family, her and her parents moved to Oahu. Uh, they right like within weeks after she graduated from high school, and she was. Uh, I, I thought I'll bet she went back to Seattle. Well, she she was raised on Mercer Island, and. Uh, that's where she showed up with a two-week-old baby. So uh, in the immigration file that I found for the father, there was a letter that said that uh, Barack Obama Sr. said that he had gotten his wife pregnant, which she could not have been his wife because he was already married when he got to Hawaii. He was married to somebody in Kenya and had two children. Um, he said his wife was pregnant and she was making arrangements with the Salvation Army to give the baby up for adoption. Um, so I started looking around in Washington to see if there were any Salvation Army homes for uh, unwed girls, and I found one in Vancouver, and it was only 125 miles away from Mercer Island, where she showed up two weeks later. Uh, I talked to a woman that used to work there at this Maywood, was the name of the home, and she said the girls would come and be there for three or four months before a baby was born and for several weeks afterwards so they could teach, you know, if they if the child was not given up for adoption. Well, her plan had been to give the baby up. The problem was they tested the blood of all the babies, and if the babies were not 100% white, they would not, they would not accept it for adoption. Um, and and it wasn't it, it didn't have to do with black babies. It had to do with Inuit or Eskimo babies. People did not want to adopt biracial babies. Then they wanted white babies. So that's how she would have ended up keeping her baby. Wow, very very. It all interesting. makes sense. It, but the- it all makes sense. The pieces all fit. That is what well, your book is fantastic. It's called The Rubbish Hauler's Wife versus Barack Obama. I highly recommend people to pick it up. Uh they can get it up on uh, Amazon and they where else can they find you, it? 
Just on Amazon is the only place they can find it. Well, Susan, it has been a pleasure. So I'm urging everyone to pick up your book. Susan Daniels' book is The Rubbish Caller's Wife versus Barack Obama. Very, very interesting. And you'll find out what happened to her and why she is such a fighter and a fantastic lady. <laughs> Susan, God oh, bless thank you. you for, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it so very much. And it's nice to talk to you again. My pleasure. All take right, care. Take care. Thank you. Check, Thanks, check out her book. All right. Check out her book at up at Amazon and download it for you. We've got a new victim in the uh, studio and want to welcome him to the show. And I know I'm probably going to mispronounce his last name because no one was kind enough to give me the phonetics of it. But we want to welcome Kenny Zhu. Did I pronounce that correctly? Uh, yeah, well, shoe, shoe, like a shoe box. Shoe. Okay. All right. Um, I've been texting back and forth to AJ because I wasn't sure if that was your number. Uh, so <laughs> I want to let him know that we got you. Okay. He's worried about it. He's checking up on you. Okay. Um, you also have a great book out there, which has really had my head spinning. But you really broke it down, which is why I named the show Wokeness or Brokeness in America. Your book is called School of Woke, How Critical Race Theory Infiltrated American Schools and Why We Must Reclaim Them. And you are also the president of Color Us United, which advocates for a colorblind society. And this on the heels of a Supreme Court decision that knocked down affirmative action. Well, Kenny, we have a lot to talk about. We do. We have a lot to talk about. I'm glad to be on. Yeah, the School of Woke is really, it was a really hard book for me to write, you know, and I did author another book called An Inconvenient Minority, which became a bestseller. But School of Woke has definitely been my hardest book to write because so little ink has been spilled on critical race theory in the schools. Some people deny it's even being taught in the schools. This book is not meant to end the conversation. It's meant to start the conversation. But one thing is absolutely certain. Once you read this book, there will be no argument. No one will be able to argue with you that critical race theory is not in the schools. It is absolutely in the schools. Uh, it's, it's, it's been all over the place, but it, now it's raised its ugly head, and it's become a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, I had someone uh, I was speaking to about the Loudoun School District, and they were involved a lot in that, and that's one of the things that you point out, that how, how much money is involved. Uh, so... Basically, what they're doing is they're taking the teachers and the parents out of the equation and using it as a school to bilk the taxpayers and then create this whole big wave of propaganda that leaves everyone forever in this, uh, you know, you have your little wheels that you had the mice and gerbil run around in. Well, you're stuck in that circle, and the money just keeps on going around and recirculating, recirculating into this huge propaganda machine. Correct. And uh, what we're seeing in the schools is they are billing you, the taxpayer, to build a quote-unquote school, quote-unquote, to assist in business transactions between left-wing activists bureaucrats, big tech businesses, and the Democratic Party. 
And who is not involved in that equation? The voices of the parents, the voices of teachers, student outcomes. None of those three things that we traditionally believe the school system is doing is currently the trend in public schools today. You know, they, they took something that Marx and Lenin built, uh, communism, and they took the propaganda and the way they formatted it. You had, it was a class warfare. And they changed it into now critical race theory because class warfare really doesn't work in the United States too well because we're too fluid. Uh, we can make millions one day and be back in the poorhouse tomorrow, and then we can recycle and go back up to being a millionaire in the poorhouse tomorrow. So class warfare really doesn't work too well, but race war works very well in the United States, doesn't it? It is, and it's also the best way for activist organizations to gain tons of money and money um, at the expense of the taxpayer. So what I mean by that is look at Black Lives Matter, right? Um, we had an organization that set up that claimed that racism was endemic in society, but you know where your donations went? Straight to Act Blue, straight to the Democratic Party. You donated to support, to support racial, quote-unquote, justice. You were donating to support President Biden. That's who you were donating to. That By now, that investigation has proven clear of course, the media has never talked about this, but it's true if you look at the filings. So the school system is becoming in the same way. It's coming in the same way. You assert widespread racism in the school. You give DEI consultants and uh, ideologues in the NAACP access to money, prestige, your own students, and then you peddle this ideology in the school system at no benefit to the students, but at incredible benefit to the organizations peddling it. And, you know, they, they fall for this ideal that simply because you're of one race, you automatically are racist and a bigot. And who wants to be called a racist or a bigot? So they kowtow. I don't mean to say that is a racist thing, but they, they basically do. They, they kneel at their altar and say, oh, oh, please don't call me that. What, what would you like me to do? How do I pay you for me being born with this color on my flesh? Correct. And I used the example from Virginia to illustrate this in School of Woke. In Virginia, we had a Democratic governor, Ralph Northam, who was actually found to uh, have put blackface on him. <laughs> he, mm -hmm. was, he was found to wear blackface back in the 1990s, which was not too long ago, um, at a party. And what happened was that people were calling on him to resign. But he, what he did was he negotiated a deal with the NAACP and, uh, to support, quote-unquote, diversity and inclusion. He said he would never – he said he would repent by supporting all kinds of democratic lobbying objectives, NAACP, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, um, instead of resigning. So, uh, and that's how he was able to get out of that scandal. Um, and so really you have these left-wing organizations holding governors and politicians and schools hostage unless they get what they want. Now, what's funny is um, he had this equity, collaborative, systematic equity audit. And he used this, uh, this, this woman, Michelle Thomas, and used this audit uh, with the Loudoun School District 
to create all these programs. And one of the programs was turning around to hire more diverse staff, uh, change the current admission practices. And I, this is one phrase I underlined, and I put a WTF on that with the oxymoron next to it, merit-based lottery. What the heck? I, I'm sorry, merit-based lottery? That makes no sense at all. It's either merit-based or it's a lottery. You can't have them both. Yeah. So really what this means is one of the programs that the school systems have been doing recently, they've been trying to cut out gifted and talented programs because they call them racist. Why are they racist? Because too many whites and Asians are getting in. Too few black kids are getting in. But, of course, of course, we know why too few black kids are getting in. It is because the family structure and the culture of support for academic excellence isn't there to a large degree. But they blame it on racism instead, and so they want to cut these gifted, talented programs, or they want to fundamentally change their admissions system so that fewer whites and Asians are admitted and more blacks and Hispanics are admitted. That's why they take schools like Thomas Jefferson's uh, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Mathematics, which was previously the number one school in math and science, and they forced it into a lottery system for admission so that anybody with a, you know, a high GPA, it doesn't matter what the class rigor is, could get in under a lottery system to improve the chances of blacks to get in. Um, but, of course, all that did was lower the standards of that math and science program and end up reducing the rigor of that school. Yeah, they call it the curve. <laughs> they grade on the curve. Yeah. So you may have 99 out of 100 questions correct and get a 99 in a test, but they create a curve to bring the lower person up to your level and drop you down to their level. Uh, so there's no merit base to it at all. <laughs> so it just becomes a pure right. lottery based upon race. Uh, it, it, it is amazing that they say, all right, fine, there is disparity in learning. Instead of looking at what the root cause of that disparity is, they say, well, because you're of a certain race, uh, you are just too stupid, and we're going to have to give you a hand up so you can then be on equal par with everyone else. Instead of saying, why are you failing, uh, maybe because Lyndon Johnson came around with the Great Society and destroyed the black family and created uh, generational poverty with his great experiment uh, called welfare uh, by breaking up the household, saying, oh, well, uh, you're going to have as many daddy ba uh, babies by so many different daddies, but daddy can't live in the house with you, so you'll get lower payments on your, uh, your Social Security disability, on your welfare, on your housing, on your food, food stamps. Mm -hmm. So as a baby, the baby's daddy in the picture, forget about it. You're not getting all this good government handout. So they break up the family. Then they take God out of our society. So what do we have to strive for? But what we're finding, Kenny, is not just grades of black and Hispanic dropping. We're also seeing, of course, the board with even white kids. More kids are being born out of wedlock in single-parent families, and it doesn't matter whether or not you're black or white. The numbers are all falling across the board, aren't they? I think you're precisely on target. So after COVID, the, um, during that COVID year, and you know, basically what happened was COVID broke the public will. 
that's what happened. So many teachers retired during that year. So many good teachers. Uh, very few PTA volunteers volunteered that year. And learning loss just went down, straight down. Now, liberals and the mainstream media predicted that it would go back up again once people returned back to school in person, right? Wrong. The V-shaped recovery has not happened. <laughs> the learning loss has persisted even a year after that year. It has continued to go down, meaning that the actual problem is far, far deeper than just going back to school. The actual problem is that the public is that these problems have been lingering for a very long time. These cultural problems, the inability of the school system to build relationships of learning between the teachers and the students. They've been going on for a long time, and then COVID broke the will of our school system. And that's what the research in my book, School of Woke, confirms. We've broken the will, and it's going to take a long time for us to get back. Well, what they've also done is taken the parent out of the picture. So now it's even the teacher is being pulled out of the picture, and it's now the guidance counselor or it's some other social worker within the school system that the children, the child is now going to or being brought to and then indoctrinated by. Uh, the teachers are told, you're only allowed to say X, Y, Z, anything beyond that. You're breaking the rules and you will be punished. I totally agree. The teacher has been moved to the bottom of the totem pole in the public school system. And by the way, this public school system is fundamentally supposed to be based off of one relationship, the teacher's relationship with the student for the purpose of learning. That's the only thing the school system mm -hmm. should care about. And yet we have spent three times as much money on the public school system over the past 40 years, and that is, by the way, adjusted for inflation. And we have not spent that money on teachers. We have spent that money on administration lawyers, counselors, DEI officers, uh, superintendent pay raises and increases, communications officers and PR reps. And each of those people play a role, yes, but they are vastly outstripping the role of the teacher in the education system. So the problem is systemic and it goes very deep. Well, what's worse is now they're telling the teacher, you're not a teacher. You're in a relationship, a friendship. You are there to nurture this friendship, not to teach anymore. We're going to plant the kid in front of the smart device, the computer, and they'll get their learning off of that. But we're finding the kids aren't learning off of the smart devices. They're not learning off the computers. They learned better when they actually had a real teacher interacting on an actual subject like math, uh, English, science. The kids aren't learning correct. anymore, you're, period. Yeah, no, correct. You're absolutely right. And this is part of the investigation. What is big tech's interest in the school system? Mark Zuckerberg declared that he was going to spend $200 million of his dollars to quote-unquote fix the Newark public school system. Bill Gates wants the school system. Microsoft, Apple, Steve Jobs pitched my home county of Henrico County, Virginia. He, he was the our county was the first county to get MacBooks, basically free. He gave them to us for free. Why would he give them to us for free? Is it because he really cared about us? No. 
he wanted us addicted. He wanted us addicted in middle school to these laptop computers, and it worked. We now have all these laptops that sit around. Kids use them. They use them to play games, and they don't learn. But this is big tech's interest. They've always had an interest in our school system uh, for the purpose of raising kids up early. But wokeness has become the new facilitator. Now the big businesses go to woke school boards and they say, we're here to solve racism. We're here to solve LGBTQ. Let us have data on the kids. Let us get access to the children. Let us give the devices to children for the purposes of solving these problems. And too often, this pitch has worked. Yeah, I was doing an interview just last week with someone, and uh, I had read a passage in your book, and it, it just clicked in my head. One of these things they do and get so much money paid for are these surveys. They go in and they ask kids, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, all these eyeball questions. Do you feel like you're in the right body? Uh, do you have days where you feel like the world, you just can't do anything? Do you ever have one of these days? And they ask all these questions. At the child's brain cannot quite comprehend what you're asking. And these surveys take an hour or so. Number one, how many people know of a 10-year-old that can sit for one hour solid still and take one of these surveys? I'm sorry. Uh, you obviously don't know a 10-year-old if you think that that child can sit there for an hour and then just stay involved in this survey. And what 10-year-old is going to start thinking those questions and say, well, 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 uh, I had my truck break, my toy truck break, and he, he's going to say, and I was really upset. I was really angry. I was really sad. And yeah, I was dark. So, yeah, you've got to check off yes on that question. They don't understand what the adult is asking, but they're forming it so they can get the response they want from that child and say, oh, see, we told you, you have a problem here. Right. That's absolute. I mean, that's that, you're spot on. And, I, you know, I talk about this in my <laughs> book, too, whether it is right and with, with the student surveying as well. Um, you got to learn how the, the pie is baked. And I think people have just been under the wrong gun for a long time. And School of Woke exposes the tactics the left will use to infiltrate the school system. Another tactic that they will use, especially with Hispanic or Latino kids, is they will ask these illegal immigrant parents who don't know any better. Uh, I'm sorry, they don't. They will ask them, Are you, is your kid born in Mexico? And if you check this box, yes, you're born in, Mex born in Mexico, they will stereotype this kid, immediately put him in an ESL class where he is learning in 90% Spanish, 10% English the whole time, basically. They will not teach English to this kid. This kid will not learn how to write an essay, this kid will know a lot and learn how to read and write English because they're not interested in assimilating the kid. They are interested in expanding the Latino white gap so that the DEI administrators in the name of equity can get more money to for their racism programs. That's what they're interested in. And they need this Latino white achievement gap to continue to be high so that they can say they're solving a real problem. This is happening in California right now. And it is, incredibly, incredibly disheartening to see. Well, what they're doing now is that where we don't recognize class in America, they are now creating classes. Uh, you're going to be either at the black 
class, the Latino class, the white class, the Asian class, and now they can pit those classes against each other, and each one is going to claim victimhood. And the more victims you create, the more voters for your progressive programs, the more money you can bilk them for, for your progressive programs, because you're going to say, see, I told you we have a problem here. They hate you, you hate them, and you can't get along together. So we're here to facilitate for you and teach you what you're doing wrong, because we know it's better than anyone else. That's what they've done. So true. They want to create, (laughs) they want to create second-class citizens. And in my tours of these schools, I see it. I see the second-class citizens, children of illegal immigrants, those kinds of things. Really, they shouldn't be in this country, but we're giving so much taxpayer money to these school districts to so-called educate these illegal immigrant children. And these kids aren't learning reading, writing. They're not learning arithmetic. They're learning critical theory. They're learning how to be victims. And they're going to be reliable Democratic voters the rest of their lives, and it's really, really sad to see. Well, is there an out for this? Is there a way out? Yes, but it's going to involve it's going to involve all of us to come to come together. Um, you you have to pay attention to your school board. Uh, you have to pay attention. You have to be vigilant. You have to get the finances of your school system and get the corrupt businesses out. Number one, get the corrupt incentives out. Number two, you need to hold your school board accountable to student outcomes. Every year, the main focus of the annual board meeting should be: what's the progress in math? What's the progress in reading? If it is stagnant or if it is going down, no excuses. People need to get fired. Number three, you need to stop incentivizing the industry that runs under the Democratic Party. If you're an honest Democrat person, you would understand this as well. It is impossible to speak out against the teachers' union if you're a Democrat. It is impossible to speak out against this school industry of victimhood if you're a Democrat. So you need to leave the party. You need to vote for other people because there's no way that this that the Democrat Party, as it's currently arranged, is going to stop this themselves because the leaders benefit too much from it. Those are the three things that I would suggest. They're very hard, but they're very practical. Well, you have the Color Us United website, which is colorusunited.org, and you've already gone after the uh, University of North Carolina Medical School. And I heard someone else saying this just last week, and before I even read your book or, re- or opened it, about the doctors that are being turned out. And they're going through this diversity, equity, inclusion training, this uh, CRT, critical race theory. They're going through uh, this new LBGTQ, whatever it is, uh, propaganda. And they're not being trained as traditional doctors have in the past. Uh, One of the things you offer on your network is the MEDS network, uh, where you look and find people in the medical field that are more traditional practitioners rather than the propagandists these new universities are turning out. It's a fantastic website. Uh, As I, it's, it's, 
young, it's new, it's fresh, and I hope to see it expand with people just listening and going there and signing up for your newsletters. Thank you. Yes, I run an organization called Color Us United, colorusunited.org. We advocate for a society for high standards, merit-based treatment, and color blindness. That's what we stand for. We don't care what the race of your doctor is. We just care for the most qualified doctor. If you agree with that message, go to colorusunited.org, sign up, because we need your voice to start a movement. Well, actually, I was surprised because I saw that some of the companies you're going uh, after, and believe it or not, in the mid-'80s, I had worked for American Express, and I saw the corporate (laughs) turn and the progressiveness of it back in the early and mid-'80s. And I wasn't very, very thrilled with them at the time because uh, they would ha- ask if you want to donate a portion of your paycheck to various organizations. And out of this whole list of 20-some-odd of them, I found only one or two that I thought that were worthy or worthwhile. I'm surprised about the Salvation Army, uh, but do you mm-hmm. do look for these companies and go after their wokeness and correct the brokenness. <laughs> you like that one, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, the wokeness and the brokenness. You've, you've got it. Yeah, no, that's what we do at Color Us United. Um, we target com- corporations that are bending the knee towards wokeness. And sometimes we will launch major campaigns that are successful, such as we targeted the Salvation Army, who was peddling CRT to its own employees, asking them to repent for so-called racism. And it was horrible. So we launched a campaign, targeted 18,000 donor signatures, got those signatures, and forced them to rescind that framework six months into our campaign. Well, I've got to say that uh, I pulled up an article in the Heritage, which you can probably take a look at. Jonathan Butcher wrote it, dealing with on-campus DEI bureaucrats that are already ditching their new loyalty oaths to CRT and DEI and ESG and all the others. I think the worm is turning. I really do. And I'm hoping that you are one of the biggest catalysts that we will find in in leading the charge forward, Kenny. It is a pleasure having you and hope to have you back on soon. Same here. Thank you. Okay. And I'm telling people to get your book, School of Woke, up on Amazon. God bless you, Kenny. Have a great day. God bless you. Thank you, too. Take care. Kenny... Kenny Shu, see, I got it correctly this time, Kenny Shu. I want to welcome on a friend of yours, uh, Curtis, so I'll let you take lead on this one. The gentleman's name is Wayne Friday, and he has a new organization he's putting up that is a pro-life organization that is being launched, and I'll let you go at it. All right. Wayne, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, give us some insight on the name um, 313 and um, its significance in what you're doing and tell us more about, you know, your program and how effective it has been. Sure. Um, We uh, obtained a, a property so we can get close to a woman's choice um, abortion mill. And we're right directly across from it. We couldn't get a better property to rent. So we, we were allowed to go out onto the easement and get right to the women that are, are going in there trying to uh, uh, get them to change their mind and, and keep their child. And uh, 
we came up with the name 313 because that's how many days in the year that they do abortions there. And um, we could not have got a better location. And um, we're glad to be there. And we just had a mass there today. We have a Catholic priest that came there. And uh, we, we did a mass today, a full mass. We all received communion. And then we took to the bricks. We went out onto the easement and we, we tried to uh, talk to the mothers and the fathers. And of course, there's a little backlash from uh, the escorts there and uh, some of the workers because, they, you know, we're, we're actually effective in a, in a way that we would like to be greater, but we, we kind of like secure at least, um, I'm saying 16, an average. That's a pretty close average, 16 saves a month. So, and that's out of uh, uh, hundreds, hundreds a month because we had close to 30, I think 27 women were there today. And recently we had a, um, an all-time high of 57 women. And they're coming from a lot of other states because have, they have a, more of a restriction on abortion. So we see a lot of Georgia. I mean, sometimes there's more Georgia than Florida there. And like today, I've seen Alabama and Tennessee today. And we also see some from Louisiana, Texas, Virginia, and some from the Carolinas. So, mm. you know, North Florida is becoming like the killing fields of, uh, of the unborn. Now, wow. when we talked, you, you were telling me that um, these, these workers that work at these slaughter centers, they warned them about about you guys, what is it that's telling these young mothers about your organization? Oh, they they prep them. Uh, on one side of the easement, they have like an administration building where they call in and they find them like uh, money if they they can't afford it. Uh, they they uh, process their insurance, what whatever they need. And on the other side is the the procedure building where they they do the the slaughterhouse. And uh, the one side, uh, they kind of like, uh, they come out and they tell them um, when they call in the call center, and they tell them that, you know, pay no attention to the protesters. We're sorry about them. They, they like apologize for us. And then, and then they come there and they have signs outside that says, uh, don't stop and talk to the protesters. And my first words to these people are, the women and fathers, that we're not protesters. We're here to help. That's my first words to them. We are not protesters. We will not judge you. We just want to help. And uh, then you have the, the uh, escorts. They come out, and they, they make apologies for us, and they act like they're protecting these people from us. And I've, t- I've told the uh, people before, I says, the only one that needs protection is that baby. And we're here. We want to help you protect your child from these people. And uh, it's just a, a sin. It's, it really is a really hard to be out there all the time. It, it takes its effect on people because it's so evil. There is nothing about uh, health care involved here. 
This is not health care. It's one of the biggest lies in the, in the humanity of, of, our, of, of our race. It's, it's just such a horrible lie, and you could see right through it. Once the Lord provides you with clarity, you, you could see right through this, and it's absurd that these people are, they come there with this, this lie in their head like, they, like it's a, a, an option, like it's, a, a, it's, it's like a, a cure for their problem. And it's not. It just opens up another can of worms. And we've seen the women. I've seen a guy that was actually scarred from, from his, uh, the abortion him and his wife had 19 years prior. Because the guy didn't know what I, was, uh, what I was there for. I was in a parking lot next to the place. And he wasn't in the, in the abortion mill himself. He was in another medical building over there. But I was parked next to him. And I got to talk to him because we both had Ohio tags. And, I, and we were just having a perfectly normal conversation. And then he said to me, well, why are you, what are you doing here? And I said, that over there, is a, it's an abortion mill. And I said, I try to help the mothers, you know, to, to tell them that there's other options and we can help them. And his face just went like, like it contorted a little bit. And, and I was like, are you okay? And I seen a little tear come out of his eye. I'm not lying. This guy was a big dude, too. And he was probably somewhere around my age, which I am 65. So I'm saying back then he was probably 55, maybe 55. And uh, I said, are you okay, bud? And he says, uh, 19 years ago, I killed my son's older brother. He said, and he was crying almost two decades left, uh, later. That's how the effect it has on people. They never get over it. And that's what this industry is doing to the women of our country. That's exactly what they're doing. They're scarring them. These women are emotionally scarred, and there's no way, I don't care how hardened these women are, it's just not a natural thing for, for a, a strange man to go and, and remove her child from her womb. That's scarring. It might take... Uh, they might try to uh, secure it and put it away somewhere for a while, but it'll come back twice as hard when, as they get older. And, and, and this industry is harming women. So, Well, they, they, they always say, it's my choice, my body, but they forget that God told us, I knew you in the womb. That is a mm-hmm. separate human being. It has its mm-hmm. own beating heart. It has its own brain. Yes, it's mm-hmm. dependent upon the mother for nutrition until it is old enough to provide for itself in adulthood. But that child, that pre-born child, is, is, is a symbiotic relationship, but it is two separate individuals. That's I mean, great. even uh, John the Baptist left because he recognized the life of Christ in Mary. These are, are, are sentient beings. They are human, fully human, and fully deserving of life. And yet we have a disposable society, and we have a propaganda machine that says, no, it's a zogite. They're not even going to call it a baby. They'll call it an embryo, a fetus, anything to dehumanize the individual that God has given us. And my mom went and did an abortion prayer uh, on one of the corners. The local Catholic Church put it together. And I made us T-shirts. 
and I found a, a picture, a graphic of a Madonna holding a baby. And I took that as the background, and I wrote upon it, and I said, I thank God my mom chose life. Amen. And if you turned around to each and every one of those women and the men escorting them and their escorts, what would you thought if you were that child and those forceps were coming after you to crush your skull and sever your spinal cord? Are you going to thank your mom for doing this to you? And what if you do survive that abortion? And babies do survive the abortions and grow up to be viable individuals. Uh, what do you say then? Because you will be scarred. Maybe your skull may be deformed or there may be other medical issues. Uh, but you're alive and you're a gift from God. Uh, but mm. we have such a propaganda machine. And life has, true. as I said, become disposable. And what is worse now, uh, Wayne, which I'm sure you're very much aware of, is that now Planned Parenthood has gotten into the transgender industry also, giving out their hormones and other treatments for kids who are not old enough to drive a car, purchase cigarettes, drink alcohol, or vote, but yet they can make a decision in their life that will forever alter their life and future, possible future generations to come by eliminating them. So if they can't kill the child in the wound, they will destroy that child's ability to reproduce going into adulthood. They're, they're killing us. Vicious. One vicious way circle. or another. It vicious. is a vicious circle. And somewhere along the way, we've got to say enough is enough is enough. Yeah, that brings to mind to, to me... Uh, I was just speaking this to uh, uh, one of the ladies that were there today. Um, I was telling her, you know, at one time, slavery was legal. And I said it was people like us that, come, uh, that came and said, this is an immoral thing. It must stop. And it was abolished. And I told them the same thing. I said, what's going on here in these abortion mills is immoral, and we are here to abolish it. So I said, the deal is the immorality of the whole industry. It is, it is a moral issue. It doesn't have to be a religious issue. It doesn't have to be a political issue. It's a moral issue. It is just so abnormal for a woman to do a process of removing her child from the womb and stopping its heartbeat. Stopping the heartbeat of your own child in the womb. I mean... I, it just blows my mind. I really can't because the Lord put clarity in my head. You know, I, I could see through, uh, through all the smoke screen. And everything that you're saying is, is 100% correct. And, and they bring these women here with the lies that you're talking about. They bring them here with the lies, and they go in, and they, they see us. And it's not us that upsets them. It's what we represent, and they know it's the truth. So they bring them in with the lies and tell them that they can take care of things. And then they see us and they know that we represent, regardless if we say anything to them at all, they see us there as the truth, that this is wrong. And I know a couple of the police officers, and they, when they went inside the building, he came out, he was telling me, he says, they are in there crying. And them girls are in there crying. This is what happens. And we, one of our women 
that we have that that's with our group. She actually had uh, uh, was in there to uh, to get an abortion, and uh, the deal is, um, she said that there was nothing but a lot of tears on the floor in there. The women are in there, and once it gets closer to the time, and they know they're going to do mm-hmm. it, they get so upset, but they're cornered. They have them cornered in there. And these women have no place to go, and they do it, and they're emotionally scarred for life. And just like... Well, what, they, uh, what, what they're not telling them is, is that it's not just the emotional scars, it's the physical scars also. Because yeah. a lot of these women... Uh, will end up not being able to bear children. Or if they do, they're in extreme jeopardy of having a miscarriage. Uh, so depending upon how skilled the abortionist is, will depend upon how well the woman could survive that abortion and possibly end up in the future giving birth to another child. If that child is able to come through a viable pregnancy too without other medical issues of their own, because of a weakened uterine wall or mm. other issues that may be going on that was a cause mm. of that abortion. Mm. I mean, mm. you're cutting flesh from flesh, and something's going to get damaged. I'll tell you, it's, it's just uh, horrible to see these women there. Like, I had nine children, and the, the last child, I was at every birth. Every birth, my wife would give me that credit. She says, you know, a lot of times I wasn't, uh, I was, I traveled for a living and sometimes I was away, but I always made sure that I, when it came down to the time of her delivery, I was there. I seen nine births. I seen nine births. And, and the, the last one was no less intense than the first. It is a miracle before your eyes to see your child born into this world. And it is the closeness I've ever felt to my wife when we're holding our baby, our brand new baby, and our lips touched. And I mean, it's, it, it is so emotional, and it is so uh, a miracle of life. And, and for somebody to just desensitize yourself to this miracle, you know, purposely desensitize yourself to this miracle is, is absurd. Like this one girl, I talked to her. I want to share one of the saves with you, and I'll try to, I'll try to condense it a little bit. Uh, This one girl, it was early, and I was the first one there, and I was putting up some signs, free uh, ultrasounds, we can help, please come talk to us, and uh, a few signs of that sort. And I seen this girl, and she pulled in, and I was talking to her, and I says, come over and talk to us, honey. I says, we got some great services. I never blast on these women at all. I just tell them that we have help. We have help for you. I never judge the women. And the, and the deal is they come, they, she looked at me, but she ended up going in. And then I walked around the side, and then when I came back, Nick, a guy that, that's with us, he said, Lane, you know that girl you were talking to? She came out, got in her car, and she got out of the car and walked down this way. She, she left her car in, in the parking lot of the, of the abortion mill and walked down the side street. He says, I got to leave, but keep an eye out for her. You know, she's, she walked away from the mill. Well, we were ready to do a procession, and I went into the office to get a, a processing sign, and it was the divine mercy. And I had that sign in my hand when I came out, and here comes that girl. And I said, hey, honey. Wow. I says, are you okay? And she stopped dead in her tracks. And I went over, and she was crying out of both eyes. 
and I, se- I, I seen in her eyes confusion, despair, uh, a fear. I seen these emotions in her eye, and I said, stop crying. The Lord is with us. And I grabbed her by the hand, and she took my hand, and I walked her over to the Women's Help Center, and that place is fantastic. I walked her over there, and this girl never met me before in her life, and she put her trust in my hand. And I took her over to that Women's Help Center and introduced her to Nancy, and I said, Nancy, please take care of her. And she was looking at me like, don't go. I said, you're in good hands. Well, I went back to the abortion mill, and I'm trying to get other women. And here I see Nancy and this girl come back about an hour later, about an hour later. And soon as we locked eyes on each other, she beelined towards me, and she grabbed me, and I mean latched onto me. It wasn't just grabbed me. She latched on me, and she looked me right in the eye. She says, thank you so much for helping me. And I seen hope and relief in her eyes. This is the strong emotions that happen some of these women are torn from. And, and, and I was like, hey, honey, I'm so glad that you changed your mind and stuff, and, and we got to talk, and, and then we, we was, was kind of split up. And she says, Wayne, come here, I want to show you something. And she pulled out of her pocket a little manila envelope and showed me the first picture of her baby, and it was the ultrasound. Wow. And, and, and we just wow. hugged, and it was so, such an emotional thing for me. I'm a guy. It's for mm-hmm. me. And if you, if you knew me before, you would never known that I would be out here with these women. And then the deal is I have six daughters and three sons, so I know how to talk to them. I just know how to talk to them. I was around seven women were in my house most of my life. So I just know how to talk to them. And, and the deal is when, when uh, like seven, eight months later, it wasn't fresh in my head anymore. And you know what? The ultrasound lady sent me a picture of of her and the and the child and i never felt the love of christ pour out of my heart i could not control myself i could not control myself i felt his love just boil out of my heart <clears throat> i got all all the repay i got all the reward from the reciprocating love the love i gave her and the love she gives back to me by this child it was a reciprocating love and it was boiling out of me. And I, I, wasn't just, I wasn't just emotional. I was maybe blubbering a little bit. I couldn't control myself. <laughs> and it was so joyous. It was the most joyous thing I've ever felt other than my own birth, my own child, my own children's birth. And just, just to help a stranger to bring her child into this world, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's, I can't explain the joy that, that it made me for, for so long, and we're still in contact. So this got to stop. It has to stop. There's too much joy, and there's too much, there's too much life out there. We need life in the world. They need to be out there. These are disciples, future disciples of Christ. We can't slaughter them by the millions. It, it, this has to stop. It really does. Well, is there legislation in Florida to help limit restrict or eventually ban these abortion mills. Uh, Planned Parenthood is so entrenched in federal and state dollars. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to completely yeah, close them down. 
but I know states such as mine, uh, we have the heartbeat bill uh, here in South Carolina. Uh, when I travel down to Savannah as I'm going through the border between South Carolina and Georgia, I see these billboards up there telling women there are alternatives than to terminating the life of your child. There are alternatives out there, uh, which people are not talking about. Uh, it used to be the woman was sent away to a boarding house where other women were girl, or girls were there and you give the baby yep. up for adoption. There are alternatives. If you can't raise the child, there are millions of people willing to adopt a baby. They're willing to well, raise it. And, I, and know, I know the, the alternatives are them. not being talked about. Yeah, they need to be more expressed because, but some of the women are not seeking it. They don't want to carry their child. There are many like that. They do not want to carry their child for nine, nine months. They see this as, as a, a, a solution to their problem, quick and easy. And it is just a horrible thing to pill in itself. The emotion of, of, of the emotional stress of seeing your child in the shower you know, it's a little formed baby. I know a woman that actually seen one and shared her experience with me, and she said it looks just like a little baby, and you're seeing this in, in the toilet or in the shower. So this is, this is what they have them lied to also. Women don't want to carry. Some of the women just don't want to carry nine months. And the Women's Help Center over there, I've seen them in action. They are the real deal. They will not drop the ball. They are compassionate, loving people over there that will do anything to help these mothers, and the resources are abundant. They have these, they look, they find uh, resources all over the Internet for them. They help find them jobs. They help find them housing. They've, they've uh, put them up in apartments till they found, uh, put them up in hotels until they found a suitable housing for them. They've come back. Women came back to us, and, and were, she was just crying, and her kids were jumping. They were so happy and because she was in an abusive uh, a relationship. And the, and, we got, and, and the Women's Health Center got them a hotel to get them out of the, uh, the, the uh, situation, the violent situation with the father and then got them suitable housing. And I just went to some of the housing places where they send these, which are the St. Gerard House and the Alpha Omega House. Beautiful people. I mean, the people are fantastic people. They are filled with love. Loves, uh, Christ's love is definitely in their heart. They are out there to help now, people. Is there a network that could interact with all these other facilities? Is there like a, a toll-free number yep. women can call if they want help? That is it something that's also interstate, or is it just within the state of Florida? I, I find the best network, I find the best network is the Women's Help Center. They're nationwide. They can direct you to any facility. They can find any resource that you may need. They have... Uh, they have paid rent. They have paid uh, electric bills, partial phone bills. They do, through the pregnancy, and now this one baby that comes fresh into my mind is a year and a half old, and they're still helping this mother get on her feet. And there's also the Angel's Closet, 
and they have uh, formula, diapers, and all kinds of baby needs. And they're, they're right down the street, and you don't need any kind of form. You don't need to come there and fill nothing out. You bring your child, and the clothes are beautiful. I was in these places. I seen what they have. And they have beautiful things. I mean, you can get cribs and strollers, everything that you need. They will take care of you. There's the, the, the lady at Nancy Basham is the one, the lady that I'm familiar with at the Women's Health Center. And that lady there is so full of help for these women, and she just feels these women in her heart like she's one of them, like she's been there. And she will not drop the ball. There are resources out there. And, and uh, our, great, our great governor, it's, I think we got like $26 million for uh, these houses to come up in Florida. And I know that they're getting this money and they're breaking ground and they're putting up like 20 units here and, a, and like a community center for the kids. And it, it, what they got going on now, they, they know that we could get rid of this abortion down to the sixth week if they don't come up with this uh, decline to sign thing. If they, if they get that petition on there, then we're we're kind of we're, we're kind of like uh, between a rock and a hard place. But if this, if Wayne. that doesn't go through, we should be all right. Wayne. Yes. Yes. Of, of of the young women that you you're able to to save, you know their babies. Do they ever express that they felt pressure into getting an abortion, and that's oh, why yeah. they were able to be turned? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. They've actually told us that the mother said they would kick them out of the house. Some of these women are, are young, very young, and the mothers make them go because they don't want to uh, raise the child themselves. And the, uh, the, the lady that is the director of the St. Gerard campus, she was uh, the, one of the women that were a product of the St. Gerard campus. She ha- aborted her first child and... Uh, her mother made her abort her child, and she said she felt so guilty, and the only relief she can get from the guilt was to get pregnant again. And her mother said, you abort this child or you're out of here. I want you out of this house. This is coming right from the lady's mouth. And she went right to the St. Gerard house, and she was housed there, educated. She had her child. She's still married to the father and has and a child's a Marine. And... And she's now the director of that house because the the the, the founder of, of the St. Gerard House passed away, and she's now the director. So she is now, a product of what can happen, you know, that of the facilities out there. She's a result uh, of, the, of the of what happens out there. Uh, now, the the individuals who work in these slaughterhouses are are they impacted emotionally or uh, any other way? These these women at what? I'm sorry that work in these slaughterhouses, are they impacted emotionally? Do they become suicidal by what they see every day or anything? Uh, We're not mistaken. Uh, At the facility that we we go to, uh, a woman's choice, which they're not pushing their choice there, they're pushing one agenda, Uh, we believe that three of the women left in a short period of time. There's a big turnover for the women for them, the, the workers that are in these places um, working in recovery, uh, working in, inside the, the body part counters, 
they're in there too also. And there's some that are just like zombies. And I, I believe they're the ones that go into the, the room, they called it. And I spoke to some of them. They said they're leaving. They're leaving out of there. And some of them are receptive to us, and we offer them employment. Some of them are receptive to our, our, our uh, request for them to leave and to tell them we can get you a better job. And we've seen three workers leave in a short period of time. Well, Wayne, um, is there a website or something that you can direct people to uh, that people can get help if they know of someone or they are someone in need of your help? Yeah, uh, to tell you the truth, uh, the Women's Help Center at uh, www.whc, Women's Health Center, jacks.com, Jacksonville. Again, that's www.whcjax.com, and that's the Women's Help Center, and you can find them anywhere. This one here is on uh, University Boulevard South in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm from Palm Coast. I drive almost 70 miles to talk to these women. I drive 140 miles round trip to go talk to these women because I'm driven to do so. It's not like I don't have better things to do than go up there and to be called all these vile names and the, and the abortionists are so vile. There's this one that is just so vile. There's no way that this guy's a healthcare professional. There's no way. And he's just a vile man. His name's Ralph Bundy and he's a vile man. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're not going to give out names. But anyway, Wayne, I want to thank you for joining us. You've got a worthy cause, and I wish you a lot of luck, and my prayers are with you and the people that work with you. Because every life you save is our future. I got you. I want to leave you with one thing. John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and may have it in more abundantly. So we're trying to stay with, with John on abundance of life here, and... uh we, I have so much more to tell you and much more to share. If, if I could get on your, your uh, podcast again, I would be glad to join. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, between you and Curtis, we'll work it out, okay? All right, God bless all of you, and thank you for spreading the word. Thank all you right. for the hard work you do. Take care. Take care. All right, yes. Wayne Friday, check out the website, which is whcjax.com want to welcome back to the show, and he's been absent a few times, so I won't beat him up too badly, my friend from the Epoch Times. Good afternoon, Mark Topscott. How are you today? Well, I am fine, and please don't beat up on me too much. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be easy. <laughs> hey, 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 Curtis, how you doing? All right. And listen, so, there's, there's you heard, two you things heard the that... big news that Go ahead. You're talking about. I'm going. To, I'm going to jump ahead of you. You're going to talk about Merrick Garland, and the prosecutor, special prosecutor, just appointed to go after Hunter yes. Biden to investigate. Uh, drumroll, piece Is the last name Weiss? David Weiss. Yeah. Weiss. <laughs> yeah. I looked at that and I said, "Wait a minute." After all the kerfuffle. Where Weiss saying, I can't put any prosecution forward without Garland's approval. Now, Garland has 
appointed him. I my head's spinning. Is it yours? <laughs> well, I, I tell you, there's there's more and there's less than meets the eye here. Um, okay. You, you would normally expect that the appointment of a special counsel um, would be a recognition that this is a profoundly important and serious investigation that needs to be conducted um, independently and according to the law and without any kind of political uh, considerations. On the but. other hand, <laughs> on the <laughs> other hand, there there are any number of uh, facts about appointing the current U.S. Attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, who has been overseeing this investigation, and I'm using quote marks on the word investigation, um, of Hunter Biden for below these many years, uh, to now say, okay, you are the special counsel. As, as a matter of fact, the one of the most important results of that is any subpoena that Jim Jordan, Congressman Jim Jordan, the House Judiciary Committee Chairman, or um, uh, Congressman uh, James Comer, who is the House Oversight and Accountability Committee Chairman, any subpoena that those two gentlemen uh, want to issue to um, people involved with President Biden and or the Biden family business are now at least potentially um, the Department of Justice can say we're not going to to uh, respond to this subpoena because it is a matter of investigation by the special counsel. In other words, it gives the Department of Justice the ability to say um, we're not going to do anything for you, Congressman Jordan. We're not going to do anything we're not going to produce uh, witnesses that you're requesting. We're not going to produce documents that you're requesting. We're not going to do anything because that's all being handled by this new special counsel. It is the perfect way to, at the very least, at the very least, throw a huge roadblock in the road of the congressional investigations that pretty clearly, based on what we've seen in the last two weeks, um, are very, very near uh, producing some um, bombshells unlike anything we've seen in American political history. Well, now, you wrote in the Epoch Times, or as I say, the Epic Times, which drives you crazy, but I love it, <laughs> an article back on the 4th of this month uh, dealing with the clarity, uh, clarifying the Hunter Biden prosecution, prosecutorial authority. And it's as if they read the article and said, well, this is the blueprint on how to get around it. And we can stroll them for as long as we want, as long as we hold the office of the president. That's basically right. Um, if you have a special counsel, the special counsel uh, is, um, by the way, under the special counsel law, um, is is required to be somebody from outside the government. So it may be that there could be a legal challenge to the legitimacy of David Weiss because he is not outside of the government. 
He was a U.S. attorney, uh, but but we don't know about that yet. But um, that particular story you're referring to, uh, I think your your reading of it was was right on. <laughs> you feel guilty about giving Garland the blueprint? <laughs> they can have the well, jail card for free. <laughs> no, that's not giving it to him. That's that's pointing out to the reader. Here's where this thing is headed. And lo and behold, yeah. here we are. A couple of weeks later, there it is. It's yeah. kind of a prediction. It is. Yeah, you know, when I when I saw it, the news flashed on my um, cell phone just as I was warming up the equipment and turning everything on, and I was saying, "Wait a minute, wait a minute." So I did a quick speed reading, and I'm saying, "This stinks to high heaven," which it does. Um, and I'm hoping that Lindsey Graham, uh, my senator, uh, has enough cojones to turn around and challenge it and take this to court and say, no, you've got to get someone from outside the government, not under your purview, that you cannot control. Well, I'll tell you, Ann, that's, that is the point on which if, if at least, and I'm not a lawyer, I'm a journalist, I'm a reporter, what do I know? Uh, but I do know that the law says a special counsel uh, must be appointed from outside of the government, and David Weiss is not outside of the government. So, so if Congress is serious about the laws it passes being uh, followed by everybody, including Joe Biden and Mary Garland, then I would think that they will have something to say about Weiss uh, being appointed special counsel. Uh, to be honest, I'm not real. I'm not real optimistic that uh, that will happen. Well, we've Mark. got pit bull like Comer, so hopefully between uh, them and uh, Steuben and a few others, they get their heads together and say, no, 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 we can't let this happen and reverse the damage that's being done right now. Go ahead, Curtis. Yes. If this ever gets to the Supreme Court, isn't it likely that um, Trump's lawyers would say, hey, look, our defendant here offered, you know, protection um, for the um, January 6th, and um, Nancy Pelosi turned it down. Not only that, um, our defendant, you know, made it clear for the people to go there, exercise your rights, but do it peacefully. That wouldn't right. sound like somebody that said go and, uh, you know, try to take over the country, you know, overturn the election. Yeah. I, I think you're exactly right, Curtis. Um, if, if you look at the video or the, um, the video of, of Trump's, specific words at that point in that speech that day um, he he specifically said go peacefully as patriotic citizens and the fact that there were some number uh, perhaps 50 maybe 100 who knows for sure uh, people who went there with the intent of anything but being peaceful um, that's you know, that's, that's on them. That's not on Donald Trump. Now, with the January 6th, uh, we're hearing that it's been revealed that the January 6th commission 
has actually destroyed valuable documents that would have probably exonerated or clarified what actually occurred. Are you hearing the same thing, that the possibility that that commission had illegally destroyed documents? Well, there's been some reporting in the Epoch Times and, and elsewhere this week. Um, the House Administration Committee, um, Congressman Barry Loudermilk, who, if I recall correctly, is from Georgia, um, has found that uh, there were indeed, um, for example, uh, when a congressional committee conducts an uh, under oath um, interview with a witness, they have to uh, create a transcript of the interview, mm-hmm. and that has to be made that has to be made available to both uh, the majority party on the committee and the minority party on the committee. The January 6th Select Committee, it appears, according to Loudermilk, did not either. They didn't make those transcripts of the many, many, many witnesses that they interviewed, or they they hidden them, or they destroyed them. And obviously, anytime something like that happens, the first question that comes to mind is, why did they do that? What is it that they don't want the rest of us to know about? So I, I think that is that is a uh, really big story that um, is, we're going to see much more about that in, in coming days. Yeah, it's, it's getting odder and odder and odder. Or as, as the Mad Hatter said, curiouser, curiouser, and curiouser. Uh, yeah. It is. And now we're, we're looking at um, the Biden family, the Biden crime family, uh, and more and more information is coming out about that. Uh, there's several new articles uh, stating that Joe is not as innocent as he claims to be. Uh, the paper trail with, was, that's coming out with Archer's, uh, Devin Archer's testimony, uh, boy, has he turned code on his former partners. Uh, it's, it's getting odder, but... Will we ever see an actual impeachment occur of this sitting president, or is it just going to be more of the insane asylum up until the next election? Uh, yes and yes, <laughs> uh, at <laughs> least in my um, my humble opinion. The, uh, the, 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 the It is an issue now within the Republican caucus um, McCarthy has talked about beginning a, uh, an impeachment inquiry, but he's couched it in terms of doing so because that would um, provide Congress some tools that they don't have at the moment. Um, and as a result, you know, that's, that's not making a commitment to um, impeach. It's a commitment to pursue information related to an impeachment. Um, and there are folks who argue accurately enough, well, even if we impeached Biden tomorrow, the Democrat-controlled Senate is not going to convict him. So um, what's the point of going through the exercise if it's not going to result in um, uh, the kind of um, result that you're looking for? So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a difficult issue. It is. It is a very difficult issue. And when you consider some of the sitting senators 
should actually resign. Uh, Diane Feinstein cannot. I, I, why she is still there, I don't know. When she's, I'm hearing now that she had turned over power of attorney for her affairs to her daughter. And if you do that, if you can't manage your own affairs, how are you going to manage the affairs of the state? Oh, that's right. You have an aide that whispers to you, vote I. Yeah. Um, you got Fetterman who can't comprehend oral speech because he is now incompetent. He has to be able to read the words because of the stroke or whatever he had. Uh, he's, he's medically unable to do the duties of the office of the, of the nation. He should be stepping down and a new senator appointed. Uh, we have several senators in there that are, should not be there. I mean, they just they cannot do their job that they were elected to do. Well, but you keep you know, them in, in there and you stall. In 1994, just a brief history lesson here. In 1994, the Republicans, led by Newt Gingrich, uh, offered a contract with America. Yeah, the American voters gave the Republicans a congressional majority in both the Senate and the House for the first time in 40 years. The Mm -hmm. second highest point on the contract with America, if I remember correctly, was term limits. And it was going to be you get two terms in the Senate and then you have to go home. And it was Mm going to be three terms in the House and then you have to go home. Um. And that, that, that idea remains extremely popular with the American people. But the Republican yep. Congress elected didn't do it. They backed off on it. And, and as I have said ever since, Republicans too often talk a great case, but they don't actually walk it. And no. there we have, you know, and it's not just, it's not, it's not just Democrat senators. Senator McConnell um, last week was in that 20-second France during a news conference, and there's uh, been talk that that was not the only time that that's happened with him. It's also happened a couple of other times before that. Um, he's fallen, and he seems to have had some some physical injuries as a result. Yeah. And of course, the president uh, himself is was... not in great shape. No, because when I saw uh, McConnell like that, the first thing that went to my mind is known as a TIA. A, it's a mini stroke. And yes. the look on his face and the way in which he acted, automatically the bells and whistles went off in my head saying that this man just had a mini stroke. And if he's suffering through a series of them and he's not yes. being treated or properly diagnosed, he can then have a major stroke that would end his life or firm, permanently, completely disable him. Now, I've, I've yeah. had two of those mini strokes. So I, the second I saw him, I said, that's what happened to me. But fortunately, I got the proper medical care. I still have a problem stumbling over some words. Occasionally, the world 
<laughs> comes like a little tilt at me. Uh, I lose my balance or something. But I was able to completely recover. I have something implanted in my heart to prevent another stroke. Uh, obviously, oh, Mitch McConnell doesn't if he's continuing to have these many strokes. And again, we've got senators sitting in office that medically or mentally are incompetent to complete their job that they were elected to do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I suspect that um, I won't be surprised if come January of 2024, um, Mitch McConnell has, uh, is still the Senate minority leader. My, my guess is that he's, he is, um, he's, he's not going to be the minority leader for much longer. No. No. Now, you wrote an article, and I, I kind of like, I, was crack, I wasn't cracking up, but I, I was saying, you know, someone really does get it. Uh, we were talking about smart devices and a lot of the manufacturing, the smart devices, where it was coming from, the uh, the chips that have to be in there. And um, here where I live, we have the F-35Bs with the United States Marine Corps here, and you hear them flying overhead all the time. But one of the major problems was that parts for the F-35s were coming out of China including at one point the steel for the skin of the F-35s. So we were finding that pilots were passing out in mid-flight in the F-35s. That's not a good thing to have happen when you're handling billion dollars of, of machinery between your legs. Not a good oh. thing for that pilot or the not machine. Not a good thing. Uh, no. But we have, we have the invasion of these modules coming out of China that have the potential to take control of our devices. Um, smart refrigerators that will tell you what's in there and tell you what to shop for. Uh, smart yeah. things that are on your, your stoves. Now, I have a brand-new gas stove, and it's got a little QR code on it. I did not scan the QR code for sure because I don't want my phone to control my gas stove especially if someone gets control of my phone through this chip that is in there to control my yeah. stove or my refrigerator or any of the other smart devices, Alexi. Uh, yeah, please don't turn the lights. <laughs> in your home and your daily lives, and now in major heavy uh, uh, agricultural and military equipment, uh, these new electric cars or even just their new car, with all the smart little chips and devices in them. Your voice-activated phone in your car, so you can make a phone call while driving hands-free. The technology has invaded our life so insidiously, and the Chinese are going to capitalize on it, I'm afraid, pretty soon. You know, it's um, it's amazing, and... um in the 1990s, the early 1990s, when the United States, um, and this was endorsed by both parties, uh, did everything it could to encourage um, China to be admitted to the World Trade Organization uh, and other mm-hmm. international groups. And the idea was <clears throat> if China is allowed to join the family of nations and join the world economy, they will um, become nice people. You know, they won't be communists who are determined to conquer the world anymore. And so we did everything we could to help them, 
and they have, in fact, grown uh, now the world's second largest economy, and they sell uh, so much stuff uh, that, like these these uh, digital modules that uh, can be remotely controlled, that if if they choose to do so, they can wreak absolute havoc across our country. And just to give one example of it, um, the uh, digital um, system that can control the activity of infrastructure, say um, uh, a dam, let's say, if that can be remotely instructed to open its gates and not close it, you could you could you can imagine what would happen. For example, if the uh, Boulder Dam suddenly was open and would not be closed, could not be closed, and flooded the valley. You know, um, some pretty terrible things could be done. And frankly, I think when dealing with uh, a regime like the Communist Chinese Communist Party, uh, they've been saying since the 1950s, literally, that their goal is to destroy the United States and become the preeminent power in the world. And that's exactly the way they act now. That's what they're trying to do. But we we seem to not want to see that. No, no, no. And COVID was a perfect example of how they can control us and destroy us. Where did all the the personal protective equipment come from? It was manufactured in China. Where are all the medications that are coming from to combat COVID and any other disease or or physical ailment? Ninety percent manufactured in China. Where are all the rare earth ailment? Uh, components coming out of for our smart devices, our cell phones, our cars, and every other item that needs rare earth materials, car bat- electric car batteries, out of, coming out of China, who is now controlling a lot of the areas where these rare earth materials are going. Well, through the different programs, China has gone into different countries. We'll build that port. We'll build that airport. We'll build those roads and bridges for you, and in return, we will get... And we have been handing China the the weapons to destroy not just the United States, but every other nation in the world. We've been handing it to them on a silver platter, and we're too stupid to see it. Well, not not everybody is too stupid to see it. Congressman Mike Gallagher, <laughs> who is the chairman of the House Select Committee on um, the Chinese Communist Party, um, and interestingly enough, a Democrat, uh, the ranking Democrat on that committee, Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy of California, um, they are going after the Federal uh, Communications Commission uh, on, you know, they're saying, in effect, in a letter to the uh, chairman of the commission, what are you people doing about all of these Chinese-made control modules that are coming into the U.S. in so many different ways? So at least somebody is is pointing it out and and trying to do something about it. So that's good news. Well, we hope we hope we can only hope. Well, Mark, it has been a pleasure. People can find you at theepictimes.com. You're also the founder of Hill Faith. Uh, always a pleasure to have you with this, and God bless you for the hard work you do over there. You too, Annie. Thanks a lot, Curtis. Hang in there, buddy. <laughs>
All right. Take care. <laughs> All right. All right. Bye bye. All right. We have <clears throat> Mark check out Mark Tapscott at the dot com. We have now with us Hannah Davis from the Heritage Foundation. And oh boy, Hannah, I I you, you just can't make some of these stories up. Um, I caught a glimpse of New York City Mayor Eric Adams uh, up complaining about the illegal immigrants in New York City and the homelessness being caused on the streets of New York. And he's blaming everyone else, but (laughs) you cannot make this up, can you? No, you can't. Thanks for having me. I know it's it's been a while, so I appreciate you guys having me back on. yeah, Adams, it's it's seemingly like overnight he downloaded some kind of software where he recognizes sensible immigration policies, but he's refusing to take it a further step and recognize that his sanctuary policies, you know, in New York City are what's causing the, the issues he has at hand. You know, you've got rampant homelessness because actual citizens don't have the right to shelter anymore. The migrants get those beds. You've got schools. Uh, being filled up with migrants, you know, the the teachers don't know what to do. You know, I mean, we've got more prostitution, more drugs being sold, a lot of violence on the streets, really nice, expensive hotels becoming shambles and shacks seemingly because of this migrant crisis. And if he would just take that one extra step and realize, hey, you know, maybe if I didn't have such such woke sanctuary city policies, uh, my city wouldn't be going the hell in a handbasket. Um, but I'm, I'm actually shocked that he's recognizing that we do need uh, stronger borders, but it also starts with the states. It starts with the cities and the local <laughs> municipalities. So. Well, he's even tried to pay private homeowners to put them up, put up the illegal aliens. Um, he's going to city shelters, to churches, to hotels, emergency facilities, schools, uh, even using church parking lots to put up these these illegal immigrant homeless, and it's, his city's not the only one. You've got it in Massachusetts, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, uh, anywhere there is a sanctuary city or sanctuary state. There, oops, well, um, maybe this wasn't such a good policy. <laughs> you think? Right, right. And I, I urge, I urge. Um Mayor Adams to target those people that have those signs in their front yard that say no no person can be illegal. Pay them first to house someone in their house. I, I wonder if they'll um, swallow, um, you know, their pride and actually do that rather than just having the sign in their yard. I I, I wonder, and I venture that they won't. But you're you're exactly right. It's, it's not just a New York City problem. It's it's a coast to coast problem now because we've got so many sanctuary cities and sanctuary counties. In states that just generally act like, you know, sanctuary states such as California, I know L.A., they said something, you know, Los Angeles said something kind of kind of flippant. You know, they were like, we're going to continue working with um, the non-governmental organizations and the churches, um, like, quote, unquote, in case Texas continues to send buses our way. You know, we don't have infinite resources, quote, unquote. And I'm thinking, Texas, you know, they wouldn't be sending these buses your way. They wouldn't be sending them to Chicago or L.A. or New York City if you guys didn't have sanctuary city policies. They're sending them your way because you give them, you know, voting access. You give them the right to work almost immediately. You know, you have your own citizens paying for their health care and their school. I mean, why wouldn't they be sending them their way? I mean, you've, you've opened the door. You put, a, you put a doormat down and said, welcome, you know. So don't be shocked when people actually take you up on that offer. Well, I don't know if you caught this. I guarantee you did. 
Project Veritas has been out there, minus now James O'Keefe, but there was an article in yesterday's Washington Examiner, not the Washington Post, the conservative newspaper, the Washington Examiner, uh, dealing with a contractor that New York City Mayor Adams had hired. I don't know if you heard this, Andrew Lorenzen Strait, a former federal immigration official who uh, joined the Biden-Harris transition team and then later brokered more than $2 billion in backdoor deals for, as they call them, migrant shelters and services. And he revealed that it was all a big scam. Did you catch this? Yeah, I did. I'm, I'm not fully up to date on it. But, um, yeah, these, I'm assuming he's talking about um, the migrant shelters and the NGOs and the money that's being funneled to them. Is that what he was yeah. speaking about? That's what he was yeah, talking about. Yeah, it is a yeah. It is, a, it is a big scam. You know, these NGOs get FEMA grants, you know, these emergency uh, food and shelter grants, um, which are paid for by the taxpayers, you and me alike, um, uh, every taxpayer, because it's a federal grant. Um, and, you know, they're supposed to be using them to house these migrants and then, you know, send them on their way, but they're actually transporting them. They're, they're, they're giving them cash sometimes. They're giving them um, plane tickets to wherever they want to go. And I've always assumed, and it, it always takes, you know, whistleblowers and uh, projects like Veritas to, to kind of uncover the truth, but I've always assumed that people who are, are working, these, these, these people who are putting in, you know, full-time, quote-unquote, volunteer shifts at these NGOs, at these, at these churches, they're, they're somehow pocketing money. They're profiting off of this somehow, and, and I'm assuming that's what he, he discovered. Yeah, that's, it is. He said there is an organization called SLSCOLLC. Whatever this SLS, I guess CO stands for company, um, who have been donating money uh, to various politicians uh, to be able to be a facilitator for these services. But nothing's happening. The money is going out. But nothing is being done with it, and we still have a rampant homeless problem, a rampant illegal alien problem, and it's nothing more than a big scam. But it's the optics that they're, they're finding is backfiring on them, and Eric Adams is finding that uh, the hard way. Yes, yeah, um, and, and you're right, nothing, nothing's going to happen. Uh, this, this current administration is so corrupted. Um, that, you know, all three-letter agencies under the current administration are, are corrupted as well. I mean, just broke, what, like less than an hour ago that there was that case manager uh, who managed, ironically enough, managed complaints uh, through the DHS. She worked in San Diego. She was a case manager for uh, Customs or ICE-1. She had a sexual relationship with a detainee. I mean, the corruption is, is from top to bottom, bottom to top and all over. And, you know, we're, we've got people, you know, really good uh, people who are working for CBP, who are working for ICE, so disillusioned with their jobs that they quit. You know, they have such a hard time um, working for an agency where they're not able to do what their mission statement states. And so and then you, you fill in with these people like this case manager who only have deviant or backwards ideas of how they should run their jobs. And it, it's from bottom to top. I mean, and it's going to continue to happen. Nothing's going to happen because of this Project Veritas. If anything, the whistleblower is going to be the one who has to go in hiding, you know? Yeah, probably, probably. And Biden is, you know, commanding DHS to release the aliens, the illegal aliens, to call them that, on their own recognizance. But what he wants <laughs> them to do is also go to work, but he can't do that. He can't give them a instant work authorization. He needs Congress for that, and I don't think Congress is going to hand him 
an open paycheck for these kids, these illegal right. aliens. Yeah, that's that's the rule of the law. You're, you're not allowed to just get immediate work authorization. Um, and, you know, I think Biden Biden's open borders just kind of signify – it equates to a blank check, you know, um, and, I mean – Work authorization isn't a isn't a privilege. It's not a given either. And um, migrants are currently leaving Florida because of DeSantis's uh, E-Verify rule. It's doing exactly he's doing exactly the opposite of what sanctuary cities are doing. He's de-incentivized migrants wanting to come to his state. If sanctuary cities kind of picked up on that and say, hey, if we don't give them, a, you know, uh, immediate work authorization, if we don't um, not use E-Verify, you know, they're gonna they're gonna leave. And so. Um, if they started following, you know, DeSantis's footsteps or really any state that enacts things that make it harder for migrants to live there, you know, we wouldn't have as many migrants firstly and we wouldn't have as, as, as much sanctuary city policy fiascos as we, as we have right now. Now, your friend uh, Virginia Allen had a great article up on the Daily Signal, and I know you're up on what she writes, uh, but we are finding that over 85,000 migrant children have been lost by this administration. How the heck do you lose 85,000 children? I'll tell you exactly how. It's when you've got all these sponsors who are chomping at the bit to sponsor these children and you don't vet them. You don't vet them. You don't know who they are. I mean, over half of uh, sex trafficking cases in America involve children. And so you would think, knowing that statistic, that they would make sure that these people who are quote-unquote sponsors and quote-unquote good people are going to be vetted, but they're not. They vet them more loosely than we vet the migrants crossing the borders. And so we've lost over 85,000 children, you know, and Health and Human Services should be investigating this, but they're not. And um, honestly, things like The Sound of Freedom, you know, like that, that movie, it really helps. You know, if we can get some things like that into mainstream media and show that this is a real life issue it's a tangible issue everybody should be able to grasp this sex trafficking human trafficking labor trafficking it's not it's not an abstract concept it happens every day in every city across the nation across the world and if we can if we can write more if we can publish more if we can produce more more um media that that targets this i think more people are going to recognize it and um right now i know there's um, a lot of people who who want there to be more um, what do you call them, hearings on, on trafficking, on what we can do, what's going on, why is it so bad? I mean, I'll tell you why it's bad. It's because of the open borders. But why is it so bad? How can we fix it? Um, what are the comorbidities that align with it? And once we start doing those things, I think we'll, we'll be able to curb it. And we'll never be able to stop it. But um, the more we speak about it, and Virginia did a great job with that article, and it's a shame, you know, that it's not 8,000 or 5,000. No, it's 85,000 children. I mean, just this year alone, we've had over 99,000 unaccompanied minors cross this fiscal year alone. They don't have their mom, their dad, no family unit with them. Where are they at? You know, it's absolutely insane what's going on, and it's because of the Biden administration's open border policies incentivizing these people to make the risk. And with that risk comes the greater risk of being trafficked. Well, you know, uh, Congressman Chris Smith, has, is trying to get legislation, is trying to introduce legislation to force um, the DHS uh, to locate and establish contact with and find out where these 85,000 kids are. Um, but that's what we know of. Mm-hmm. We don't know yes. how many more that have gone through the cracks 
uh, you, we have no way of knowing where these children are. And this film uh, that was just recently released, The Sound of Freedom, exposes the human trafficking and the toll it takes. Um, it's a step forward, but unless we get the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI and the DOJ to do their job, there's going to be a heavy human toll and cost to pay. Yeah. Yeah, and, and going back to, to sanctuary policies, I mean, New York City, since last spring, seen over 90,000, pushing over 100K um, new illegal aliens in their cities. And, you know, 54 elected officials signed this letter. I mean, it was a bipartisan letter. And they've done the same thing when, in regards to unaccompanied children and human trafficking. You know, they sign these letters. They send them off to Biden. And what do you, what do you think he says? It's just crickets. He says nothing. And, and it's a shame that you have to almost beg for attention from the administration who caused the problem in the first place. And, so, and there's, there's nothing that we can do at the federal level right now. I mean, almost nothing. Um, but the states have a lot more power than they recognize. They've got the power of the purse. They've got their local municipalities that have a lot of power. And if they start enacting policies that curb illegal immigrants, it's going to also curb the um, uh, the human trafficking that comes along with mass migration. And that's the, that's the best thing we can hope for right now because these letters aren't doing it. Um, bipartisan um, support isn't doing it. And, I mean, we're going to continue to have these hearings and continue to write these letters. But at the end of the day, I think what's really going to curb it is a change in the White House. And we've got a, you know, we've got a, a year or so before that's going to happen. And, and, unfortunately, we're just going to have to keep pushing like we are right now. It's definitely an uphill battle, but it's a worthy battle. And um, it's a shame that it has to be done, but... We're doing what we can. Well, Congressman Chip Roy, he's a congressman out of Texas, has a good idea. What he's saying is, I'm not going to vote for any budget, any budget that does not uh, reform, change DHS or DOJ. Now, Congress has until September 30th for this fiscal year to pass an appropriations bill to fund these government agencies. Um, there is hope that if we hold up funding that we can get some of these changes done through Congress. Is there? Yeah, yeah there, I mean, there is. That's a slim chance for other people to jump on his bandwagon and do it, but I, I certainly hope they do. I mean, funding should be held not just from DHS as a whole, but from, you know, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Um, you know, he's left the border wide open. Uh, I think um, Chip I think he said he left it exposed, and that was a good way to word it. I don't hear it that much. Um, but, you know, if, if, if more people jump on the bandwagon and, and say the same thing, huh, they're just not going to vote unless funding's taken away, you know, that's, that's another way to use the power of the purse, and it might actually enact some change. It's unfortunate that we have to go that far, that we have to threaten, you know, three-letter agencies funding or, you know, secretaries funding. But, you know, I mean, if it, they merit it, and so something has to, something has to give. Well, um, Biden is, is, is doing a bit of a battle with uh, Governor Greg Abbott over the boys that are <laughs> sitting in the buoys, sitting in the Rio Grande. And he's, he's, he's saying that uh, it, it's causing death and other things happening, these buoys that Abbott has erected. Yet he fails yeah. to understand what these things are actually doing. And uh, it was Hans von Spakovsky and Charles Stimson that wrote a great article in the Heritage dealing with the, 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 the misconception 
or this deliberate propaganda that the Biden administration is putting out about Abbott's buoys. Right. I mean, the the, the current administration, they're almost like a, an insubordinate toddler, if you think about it. They always have to counter what you say. They're never, if you say, you know, if you say jump, they're going to sit and vice versa. They can't ever just align and say, hey, you know what, I see where you're coming from, Texas. I see that you have the right to protect your land. I see that, yeah, you're right. We haven't put up a border, so why wouldn't you? You know, you're going to put up this buoy system and see if it if it helps, you know. And But instead of doing that, and they know that why Texas is doing it, Texas isn't doing it to get under the, the, the skin of the Biden administration. They're doing it to protect their citizens. But no, the Biden administration sees it like, you know, hey, um, I, I get that you're doing this, but and I see why. I see the logic behind it, but I'm still going to go against the grain and, and, and against what you think. And I, I really liked Governor, Governor Abbott's, you know, his, his letter to Biden. You know, he, quote, if you truly care about human life, you must begin enforcing federal immigration laws, unquote. And it was a direct quote from that letter he sent up to the White House. And he's absolutely right. How how hypocritical, what an asinine opinion to come out of the White House to say, hey, you know, these buoys, they're, they're killing people. They're ruining business. You know, you're making the Rio Grande really hard to cross. Like how crazy, how dystopian has our current administration gone where they don't realize that Abbott put these up to deter illegal immigration, you know how many people die crossing that river? We've had we've had um, agents die trying to save migrants from crossing that river. People with young children at home don't get to come back, and migrant or citizen of America alike. I mean, the same thing happens almost every other day, and it's a crying shame that the White House has to be so obstinate to any pro legal immigration laws that they're gonna they're gonna act just enact such backwards policies and sue Texas because how dare they put up a buoy wall system. It's absolutely insane. And you're right, Cully and uh, Hans, they did a great job um, writing that article. I I really enjoyed reading it, and they made some really good points, and they're really good at um, breaking it down for the the public and just how backwards the the current administration is. And And it's a shame that they don't recognize the state's right to protect their own land. And Texas has, you know, it gets the worst of it out of all the 50 states because, you know, it borders Mexico, and how, how, dare they, how dare they protect their own land, you know? It's absolutely insane where we've gotten. Well, what's funny is because they're, they're, um, they're quoting in their federal lawsuit against the state of Texas and Governor Abbott, uh, 33 U.S.C. Uh, statute 403, and that bans the creation of any obstruction, and this is paraphrased in the article, to the navigable capacity of the waters of the United States and makes it unlawful to build a wharf, pier, dolphin, boom, weir, breakwater, bulkhead, jetty, or other structures in any port, roadstead, haven, harbor, canal, the navigable river outside of established harbor lines without the permission of the Army Corps of Engineers. Now, that's for an individual or a company to do that. It doesn't mean that the state of Texas can't do that. And Governor Abbott, who happens to be an attorney, I think is fully aware of what the statute said before he authorized the buoys to be deployed. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's not for it's not a it's not a law passed against the state. It's a law passed against the business or a private company or the like. And, um, you know, and also, even if it was uh, a law for the state, it's still navigable. I mean, the buoy wall system ends. It's got a beginning and an end. You know, it's not an infinite line. I mean, if they really want to, swim around it, take your canoe and swim all the way around it. So, I mean, at the, even if you were going to use their logic, they're still wrong because you can get around it. 
<laughs> well, before we go, because I'm looking, we only have about 10 minutes left on the show. The whole day is going really, really fast. Um, my orcas, he's a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, here he is. <laughs> he's in a, an exchange with uh, Senator Ted Cruz. And we've known that these illegal aliens are coming, of course, with wristbands. I mean, every single person in the United States knows that they're coming, of course, with wristbands. If you go to a nightclub, you get a stamp on your hand or a wristband. You go to the hospital, you get a wristband. We know the purpose of a wristband is to identify. And they're color-coded, depending upon the cartel or the coyote that's bringing them over. But some reason, Mayorkas is in the dark about that. Go figure this one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, these cartel members, you know, they they put these different bracelets on um, different people, and the the price will either signify the 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 bracelet will either signify the price they still they still owe, or the cartel that they came through. They signify. There's a I saw a list, and it's like ten different things. And the fact that the head, the secretary of my work is doesn't recognize what it is. Either one, he's lying and he does know, but he'd rather look like he doesn't. So he's trying to snow the people. Either way, both look horrible on his end. I mean, you would rather look incompetent than tell the truth that you do recognize what they're for and you're still not doing anything about it. He kind of loses either way, you know. I mean, ultimately, we're all losing, but he could answer, yes, he knows what they are, and he would still get his head chopped off. Or, you know, he can answer, no, I don't know what they are, and he just looks stupid. So I guess he chose that one. He chose that path. You know, the path, the path of least resistance, just act like you don't know, plausible deniability. But either way, he merits impeachment because of it. You know, the fact that he either knows what they are and has done nothing about it, or two, doesn't know what they are, either way, he merits impeachment. And he doesn't have, he, he shouldn't, he doesn't deserve the right to office in this position. The same with Camila. Camila, our quote-unquote borders are, I mean, I thought it was really funny. It was about a week ago, DeSantis asked to meet up with her to talk about, you know, the curriculum in Florida that's got some big backlash right now. And, quote, unless she has a trip to the southern border plan that day, unquote, which obviously, you know, was a slap in the face <laughs> to her because she never goes there, you know, because she's the border czar. So I thought that was pretty funny of DeSantis and, and um, you know, quite cheeky on his part. But, of course, she didn't respond. And, of course, she didn't have a trip to the border that day uh, anyways. But, yeah, you know, my orcas, he, <laughs> he, he merits impeachment. He lies to the public. He acts like he's dumb. This is a crisis by design. You know, ultimately what they're going to do is they're going to give amnesty. These people are going to vote left, and we're going to have a nation with no borders, a nation with no consensus on values, and, and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to erode America from the inside out with open borders, and right now it's working. And the only thing we can do is to keep pressuring the current administration, keep talking about it like you are, and um, keep writing about it, and, and, and the states have to recognize that they got to get rid of these sanctuary city policies. And that's, that's the, those are like the first five things we got to do. And um, luckily, as backwards as it sounds right now, I can't believe it's coming out of my mouth. I think Adams is catching up. I think he's catching up. So hopefully other sanctuary city <laughs> policies um, will continue to erode, and other, other cities and uh, state elected officials will continue to, to, to hound the current administration, and, and maybe we'll see some change. But who knows? Yeah, well, before I let you go, there's one last thing. Uh, this is something that popped up just recently in the last couple of weeks, that um, the fentanyl that's now coming across the border with this, the smuggling of illegal aliens is now containing something called Trank. Uh, it's actually Xylazine. Xylazine. Xyl- uh, that's a, how I pronounce it. Xylazine. It's a veterinary uh, sedative. It's, for, it's not for use in humans. But they're now cutting the fentanyl with it with really tragic results. 
Yeah, um, between 2010 and 2015, about 2% of fatal overdoses that were caused by fentanyl was because the fentanyl was laced with the strength. And now, you know, as of a couple of years ago in 2019, it's 31%. I can't imagine what the statistics are now. You know, I would have thought that fentanyl would have been enough uh, for China and for um, the cartels, you know, to work together and lace everything because it's cheap, easy to make, and it gives I, I'm apparently a very, very strong high effect. But then they found something that they can even cut fentanyl with. It's even cheaper. The effects are even even the the high is supposedly supposed to be much longer and much quote unquote better, and it's easier to make. It's absolutely insane. It creates horrible wounds, and you know, this 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 stuff. You know, this this it's not a controlled substance. It's easily obtainable from China. You can order it directly on on the internet. It's been found in 48 states. You know, the South has it worse. I think the percentage was like pushing almost 200% worse in the South. You'll find more of this trank um, in the South, and I think that's because of the open border proximity. It's so close to the open border down there in the South that you're going to see more. You know, China, China. You know, they've they've we've got over 50 million fake pills laced with this trank and and fentanyl in the nation. We've got over 10,000 pounds of fentanyl powder we found that's got shrank in it. Um, And that's just stuff that's been seized. You know, who knows what what hasn't been seized. And we've got to cut off. We've got to cut it off. You know, China, they make the precursor chemicals. They send them to the cartel south of the border, and they ship it up here. And next week it will be something that they're cutting shrank with something else, you know. And and luckily there's the, the Fend Off Fentanyl Act, which is a bipartisan act that's supposed to disrupt supply chains and strengthen sanctions against China and, and Mexico, and hopefully that'll get that'll get some, um, some 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 gusto behind it, some bipartisan support, and 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 maybe we can start seeing you know less of this trank, less of this fentanyl, and, and whatever the eventual next uh, horrible drug is. Hopefully we'll start seeing um, less less of those things coming across both our southern and our northern border. Um, and and so I'm I'm really happy about this fend off fentanyl act, and I'm hoping to see some more support for it. Well, Hannah, it's always a pleasure having you with us, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. You never know what this administration is going to throw at us, so we got to keep ourselves on guard, and you are the gatekeeper to that. Thank you. They, they keep throwing and throwing, and I'm, I'm trying to catch them as they come, and I'll let you guys know all about it next week. Absolutely, and they can find you at heritage.org. God bless you, Hannah, and thank you for all the hard thank work you. you do and the people you work with. All right. Bye-bye. All right, check out Hannah Davis at heritage.org. Also, articles up on the Daily Signal that you can get through heritage.org. That's what we got for today, Curtis. Uh, that's all I got, and I have no idea who we got for next week. I haven't even looked at it. <laughs> but we will we'll be come back up with somebody next week. <clears throat> same bat time, same bat station. So I'm going to leave right. everyone with my friend. That's Gary what we got for today, Curtis. Well, Yeah, I heard that too. Now you faded out. No, no, here I am. Here I am. I turned my head. I'm going to leave my friend Gary Pecorella, Save America. So for everyone, I say good night, God bless, and see you next week.
the home of the free. But there are people making plans to change America. They've no respect for her or what matters most to you. That's why I stand for the plan and I kneel at the cross. For the friends I have loved and lost In asking you be Because he trusts In the freedom I fought for his plans I hope it's not too late To save America Oh, uh-huh.